This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. a radio talk show host, I was a radio producer. Uh, long before I was a producer, I was a phone screener, and uh, before that, I was a tape editor, but before that, I was in between being an intern and having um, a regular full-time job at a radio station, I was a substitute phone screener, and I would kind of fill in whenever they'd need somebody. At a, at a radio station, and I got to meet and work with a lot of interesting people, some of the biggest names in all of talk radio, and some of the names that you've never heard of in all of talk radio. And it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it because I'm a fan of the medium. And I, one, of the, one of the more memorable opportunities that I had, this is going back about 20 years, one of the more memorable opportunities that I had in that time was to be able to work with Matt Drudge uh, on his radio show. And the reason that it was memorable was many reasons. One, I was always really impressed with Matt Drudge in terms of what he'd been able to do in terms of uh, the Drudge Report and his books and things of that nature. But I just loved him on the radio. I've always said that if I owned a radio station, I would break the bank to hire Jay Diamond to do a show. Matt Drudge is the other person in that category, that I would empty my bank account to uh, hire Matt Drudge to get him back to do a radio show because he was just so good. And I remember working with him. His show was on Sunday nights. I'm sure a lot of you remember it. And one of the things that struck me about that show is he wasn't present in studio, at least not when I worked with him. He would always be somewhere else, mostly in Florida, but wherever else he'd be. You never knew where he was. And what would strike me is that the engineer would – it would be two, three minutes before the show, and Drudge would be – he would fire off all his own sound, and he would uh, be previewing cuts and things of that nature. And the engineer would talk to him and say – Hey, Matt, can you hear us okay? Or something along those lines. Or, uh, Matt, are you all set? You ready? They want to make sure they're connected. And basically, Drudge would come back on. This is with two minutes, two and a half minutes before the show's about to start. And he would come back on. He says, yeah, real, all good here. Real busy, real busy. I'll, I'll, I'll be there already. And I would think to myself, you know, uh, Drudge wasn't being rude, but he was being a little dismissive. And you could tell that he really was busy. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, I said, geez, it's two minutes before the show. How is he not ready with what he's going to talk about and exactly what he's going to say? How is he not yet prepared for for this show? I mean, I guess that's how geniuses work. And lo and behold, I find myself literally every day until the second before the show starts, trying to prepare just the bare minimums of things that I need to be able to be ready for the show. So you know what I've learned 
since doing a show, especially, you know, a four-hour daily show, is that it's not just geniuses like Matt Drudge that need every possible second before the show to be ready. It's even the layman like me. Because I'm, I find myself just now, I'm trying to prepare, you know, the show and a bunch of other things, do all the other things you need to do. And I keep looking up to the clock. All right, I still have two minutes. All right, still have 90 seconds. Still have 40 seconds. And I'm still trying to squeeze every last ounce of productivity out of those 40 seconds. All right, a lot to get to. Um, we, we'll, we'll get into an AI discussion in about 20 minutes with a fascinating attorney and writer by the name of Alexander Zupatov. Going to talk with him. Uh, we're going to talk, we've got the AC report coming up a little later. Laura Curran is scheduled to be here. Brian Kilmeade is going to be here. We've got a lot to get to. Now, a lot of you may have heard about the abortion pill situation. So on Friday, I believe, uh, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, but on Friday, Mif. Mif- Mifeprestone, I believe that's the pronunciation. If it's not that, it's close. I'm not. I'm going to try to avoid saying it because I'm not confident in my pronunciation. But mifeprestone, the most commonly used method of abortion in the United States, was thrown into some legal ambiguity after conflicting court rulings from two federal judges in Texas. You had a situation where the U.S. District Judge. Matthew uh, Kaxmark suspended federal approval of the drug, which first cleared the Food and Drug Administration 23 years ago. And the judge's ruling came in a lawsuit filed by the Alliance Defending Freedom, who was involved in the Mississippi case that led to Roe versus Wade being overturned. ADF is arguing against its safety. And approval, and the judge, who's a Trump appointee, signed an injunction directing a reversal of the judge's approval until that lawsuit is complete. Now, in his 67-page injunction, Kaxmark said the FDA made a series of legal errors in approving the drug and that the anti-abortion challengers were likely to succeed in their lawsuit against that approval. And he gave the government seven days to appeal, which it did. Monday morning. Uh, This is what the judge wrote. The court does not second guess FDA's decision making lightly, but here FDA acquiesced on its legitimate safety concerns in violation of its statutory duty based on plainly unsound reasoning and studies that did not support its conclusions. Now, less than an hour later, U.S. District Judge Thomas O. Rice an Obama appointee in eastern Washington released a nearly opposite order relating to a separate lawsuit directing the FDA not to make any changes in the availability of the drug in 17 states where Democrats are suing to protect its use. So we have um, basically two different judges, two different uh, political persuasions behind the judge, one a Trump appointee, one an Obama appointee, issuing two directly contradictory rulings. Any guesses as to where this is headed? Yes, that's right. Even the people that can't guess that the fourth uh, answer is going to be James Madison and the $1,000 Minute could get this one. 
This is going to head to the Supreme Court. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Well, legal experts, which I am not one and don't pretend to be, have said there's very little precedent for Caxmark's ruling, which amounts to one lone federal judge overruling longstanding FDA approval of a publicly available drug. And quite frankly, it's a, a relatively popular drug, both from the people that take it and the people that prescribe it. The plaintiffs in Texas could not point to examples of a court previously intervening in longstanding drug approval. It would be almost the same as a judge these days saying, uh, you know what, we're not allowing Viagra anymore. That should no longer be legal. It's been legal for 25 years, but tough. There's also no precedent, or not much precedent anyway, for a nearly concurrent ruling from another federal judge in a separate case that directly throws such an order into limbo. The unusual nature of these cases is what I want to focus on here, not necessarily the abortion aspect of it. And the competing orders means that one or both of these suits, as I said, is going to go to the uh, Supreme Court. Harvard Law School's Glenn Cohen told the Associated Press, FDA is under one order that says you can do nothing, and it's an, uh, and another order that says in seven days I'm going to require you to vacate the approval for this drug. So what do you do? What do you do? Uh, well, mifeprestone is one of two drugs used for medication abortion in the United States. The other is misoprostol, which is also used to treat conditions like stomach ulcers, and research shows it's rare for either drug to cause serious uh, adverse effects. So typically, mifepristone is the first pill in a two-drug medication regimen that's used in more than half of all abortions in the United States. If Judge Caxmark's ruling were upheld by a higher court, the drug would become illegal even in states where abortion is still legal. Understand, New York, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Maine, it would be illegal there too. So medical providers have said that if mifeprestone were removed from the market, they would continue to use only misoprostol, which has a lower rate of effectiveness in terminating pregnancies, but it's commonly used alone outside the United States. So some Democrats in Congress responded by calling for the Biden administration to ignore the federal court's ruling which could send this administration into uncharted territory, and some people are claiming that this would set off a constitutional crisis. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra, whose agency oversees the FDA, said everything was on the table and declined to answer directly if the Biden administration would consider ignoring the ruling. One of the people who says that this ruling could should be ignored by Biden even if it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, no surprise here. Even the people that think James Monroe, James Madison is James Monroe or William Henry Harrison got this one as well, is New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is her on CNN, I believe it was over the weekend, saying President Biden should ignore this ruling. Well, you know, I think um, rulings like this, and I think we've seen from the FDA and and also from activity in Congress that 
some of these rulings, there, I think we've been preparing and anticipating for there being these egregious overreaches um, by members of the judiciary appointed by a right-wing Republican Party, uh, whose goal for a very long time was to just pack these courts with partisan judges, often uh, often underqualified or completely unqualified for the for their role, and so. There has been thought, I believe, given to this. Senator Ron Wyden has already issued statements, uh, for example, advising what we should do in a situation like this, which I concur, which is that I believe that the Biden administration should ignore uh, this ruling. I think that we, you know, the courts have the legitimacy and they rely on the legitimacy of their rulings. And what they are currently doing is engaged in an unprecedented and dramatic erosion of the legitimacy of the courts. They, it, it is the justices themselves through the deeply partisan and unfounded nature of these rulings that are undermining their own enforcement. All right. Now, that is the aspect that I want to focus on, uh, because according to recent polling, roughly 72 percent of Americans oppose laws that make abortion pills illegal. Even a lot of people that uh, think Roe versus Wade was not rightly decided, they think it should be left up to the states to decide whether abortion is legal in that state. And a lot of those people – now, there are some people that are way out there like Mike Pence that just want abortion permanently banned no matter what. But um, the people that want it left up to the states, they don't tend to support making this pill illegal, which is what the consequence of Judge Caxmark's ruling would be. But you know who some of the happiest people were were to hear Senator Ron Wyden and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez say that were? Republicans and conservatives. And it has nothing to do with the fact that they might benefit politically. It has to do with the fact that if presidents or other government officials can suddenly make ignoring Supreme Court rulings the norm— Can you imagine the rulings that future President Trump or future President DeSantis would ignore from the Supreme Court? And my question for you, very simply, whether you're a Republican, whether you're Democrat, whether you're conservative, liberal, or somewhere in between like I kind of am, how do you feel about ignoring rulings from the Supreme Court? Should presidents, if they believe a court has way overstepped, do you believe that a future president, Trump, or a current president, Biden, should do, in essence, what Abraham Lincoln did with the Dred Scott decision and ignore the ruling of the court? And my answer really is maybe which I'm going to expand upon in a minute, but I'm going to give you a chance to call in. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. So the right is very skeptical of Cax Marrick's ruling, but also supportive of his framing of medication abortion. Some argue that the left is only upset because Cax uh, uh, Marrick properly frames what abortion is. Others say, on the right that the legal leaps are flawed and could backfire in unforeseen ways. The left is harshly critical of this ruling. 
saying it's lawless and dangerous. And some argue that the injunction is obviously a stretch and Kaczmarek's logic is just indefensible. Others wonder what the Supreme Court will do when it inevitably intervenes. As far as I'm concerned, abortion is obviously a very contentious issue. I've shared my position on it repeatedly in the past as both a legal issue and a political one. And today, though, we're not talking about the morality of abortion. It's essentially irrelevant to this discussion. This is about a legal ruling and the justification for it. And to that end, Kaczmarek is wrong. And he has seriously overstepped. And, um, I mean, the plain contours of the argument against Kaczmarek are not just being made by liberals. Conservatives and writers assessing this honestly, whether they're the Wall Street Journal editorial board or writers from Reason magazine, they are conceding the obvious. The plaintiffs don't have standing. The approval is beyond the statute of limitations to be challenged. Can't go back 23 years and a challenge an FDA approval. And Kaczmarek ignores decades of precedent on laws that he's citing here. And the extremism of this ruling and the disingenuous nature of it are very clear. And, of course, in today's tribalized politics, it's hard to criticize your own team. So you end up with weaselly sentences, like what the Wall Street Journal editorial page said. Judge Matthew Kaczmarek's, uh, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek agreed but made several legal leaps. Or is this a legal stretch? The ruling doesn't contain stretches or leaps. This is outright, plain old-fashioned judicial activism. It's right-wing judicial activism instead of left-wing judicial activism, but it's judicial activism nonetheless. If the Supreme Court upholds this ruling, just like if the Supreme Court does anything else that is unconstitutional, I believe that the president should ignore it. I have been saying this for years. For far too long, the Supreme Court has unduly interfered in our local, regional, and national politics. The justices on all sides of our political spectrum, they consistently veto important state and federal laws without any persuasive basis in constitutional text or history. A great book on this, written by a guy that's been a guest on this program many times, is Supreme Myths by Professor Eric Siegel, why the Supreme Court is not a court and why its uh, justices are not judges. Got to read that book. It's short. You read it in a weekend. So there have been a whole bunch of proposals advanced by legal scholars and politicians to deal with a court that's much too involved in our politics and our elections. None are going to be adopted in the near future. Even President Biden, he put together a Supreme Court Reform Commission. They failed. This is his own commission, by the way. They failed to agree on a single major idea. Not one. They couldn't even agree. Biden's own commission couldn't pick one idea that they agreed on. So we have to do something to rebalance where we are because we don't have checks and balances. We have a cryptocracy. We have... uh, a court that has veto power over the people and over the legislative branch of government and the presidency. And that's not appropriate. We have a dictatorship of the court. And this court needs a brushback pitch. And I'd love to see some presidents start doing what Andrew Jackson did and Abraham Lincoln and just start ignoring these rulings. 
And uh, there, th- there's one possible reform that is rarely discussed, but what might work and has a very solid foundation in history, and that is the people and our elected leaders should threaten to ignore the court when it intrudes into governmental policy where it simply does not belong. This may sound radical. It is not. This has a strong democratic tradition, small d. And if the politicians who are ignoring these orders are that people don't like it, they should vote those politicians out of office. This might be the only tool available to the American people to weaken a dysfunctional court system. So even before the American people voted for the U.S. Constitution, a writer with the pen name Brutus wrote about the likely dangers of unelected, life-tenured Supreme Court justices with the power to strike down laws that they would pose for the new government. This is what he wrote. This is in 1780-something. There is no power above them to control any of their decisions. There's no authority that can remove them, and they cannot be controlled by the laws of the legislature. In short, they are independent of the people, of the legislature, and of every power under heaven. Men placed in this situation will generally soon feel themselves independent of heaven itself. Well, you know who responded to Brutus? Nothing to do with the wrestler who mastered the sleeper hold, Brutus Beefcake. Alexander Hamilton. Before they were writing plays about him and trying to take him off the $10 bill, he had something to say about why this was not going to happen. He responded to these concerns. Federalist paper number 78 by saying the soon-to-be justices had neither purse nor sword and their power would depend on the people's trust. Also, the Supreme Court may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm, even for the efficacy of its judgments. He also said the court would not declare laws unconstitutional unless there was an irreconcilable variance between a statute and the Constitution. Hamilton, like most of the founders, believed that judicial review was a tool for judges to employ infrequently and only upon a strong showing by the plaintiff of a clear constitutional error. Now, what have we seen over the last 200 years? We see that Brutus was right and Hamilton was wrong. Throughout American history, the Supreme Court has issued country-changing decisions, striking down state and federal laws that no one with a straight face could argue they were right to do, that, that they were in irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. In 1857, the court said Congress could not end slavery in the territories, despite Congress having the power to do so in Article IV of the, sex, uh, the Constitution. In that decision... They helped create the Civil War. Thank you, Supreme Court. 1883, the court did not allow Congress to prohibit racial discrimination in places of public accommodation, leading to almost a century of racial segregation. The court has interfered in our elections in many harmful ways, striking down reasonable efforts on campaign finance. Uh, declaring unconstitutional a key section of the Voting Rights Act, uh, Voting Rights Act, then narrowly interpreting the remaining part of the law. None of these decisions were justifiable as a matter of text or a matter of history. Why would any country delegate to elite lawyers 
decision-making authority over controversial and difficult issues such as gun control, abortion, affirmative action, just to name a few. Well, the answer is we didn't. The founders didn't. It's nowhere in the Constitution. They claimed it for themselves, and we need to teach these bastards a lesson. We need to get these guys to back up off the plate a little bit by throwing inside, and I think it would be a grand old thing if presidents started ignoring Supreme Court decisions that um, nullify state, local, and federal laws. I really do. And I I happen to be. I, I, I don't like all the politically charged rhetoric that AOC used there. I'm on the same page as her on this. And if this was a court that had, um, if this was going to be a Supreme Court decision that nullified a a conservative ruling, or I would say the same thing. I would say the exact same thing. Power to govern belongs to us, the people, and our elected representatives, not uh, nine judges in robes who serve for life and are accountable to no one. Who's with me? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Hello. I'm with you. I think this is one, one of the greatest openings I've ever heard you say. Not only is Brutus accurate, as you quote, quoted, it, it, it harkens back to a book the great Mark Levin wrote called Men in Black, and he called them radicals in robes because, as we know, and as you so eloquently stated, the Supreme Court or any Supreme Court exists to either rule by state and or federal constitutional law, not to legislate on the bench. They're not, they don't exist to legislate. They exist to rule by law, by constitutional law. Thank you, Mark. 800-848-9222. To your point, maybe it's time for the people or the president to stop acceding to Supreme Court decisions, striking down laws, unless the justices make a showing of clear constitutional error. Um, this strategy might cause some people to remember the governor of Arkansas in Brown versus Board of Ed. He said that didn't apply to his state in the 50s. And that led the court to emphatically say that it did. And Eisenhower called in the National Guard. And the specter of events like that, they may, that may, might make folks some nervous about dis, disobeying the court. But as Hamilton observed, the system is built such that the executive has the discretion to refuse to enforce court decisions. In the words of Professor Chris Sprigman of NYU, I would have him on the show, but he doesn't like to stay up late. Hamilton argued the court's utter dependence on the executive branch to enforce its judgment meant the court has no, was no real thought, uh, excuse me, was no real threat to liberty. But for that argument to make sense, it must also be true that at least in cases where a court ruling provokes some disquiet, The president will make an independent assessment before enforcing it. The court has become a focal point of America's current dysfunction. It intrudes in areas of public policy where it doesn't belong, like abortion, like gun control. And these justices have warped our elections and our politics. Um, 800-848-9222. We have a distinguished lawyer and writer waiting in the wings. He's welcome to weigh in on this, but I want to get him to chat about... uh, artificial intelligence. But uh, David in the Bronx, um, I know you disagree. Uh, You can say whatever you like. Just make it brief if you can, David. All right. Well, you know, I generally agree with you on the Supreme Court that it's uh, taken powers that were not delegated to it in the Constitution. But 
Let me just give you one example, which you did not mention. Loving versus Virginia, 1967, which legalized interracial marriage in the entire country. Now, according to your theory, the states that at the time believed that that was perfectly appropriate to tell people they couldn't marry some of, of another race, the Supreme Court would not have been able to decide that, or if they did, it would not have been enforced. That would not be good. Same thing with Brown versus Board of Education. There's a lot of areas where the Supreme Court has been necessary because the, the legislative and executive branches have not had the willpower to do the right thing. What do we do in that case? Well, it's a great question, uh, David, and I'd love to have a longer discussion about it. Maybe we'll revisit this a little bit later. We have no guests next hour. But Brown and Loving v. Virginia, they are both textually justifiable under the 14th Amendment. And it stands for a principle we should all share. And that is not true for most of the court's constitutional law cases, which involve issues most reasonable people can disagree about. And in such circumstances where I think one thing, you think another, those should be issues for, legis- for the legislature. And the court should stand down. But it hasn't. And it won't, absent some major changes. And I think this might be the kind of thing that sends a chilling effect to these politicians in robes. All right. Uh, Robert, Peter, Larry, if you want to hold on, I'll get to you a little later. Um, Way late here. Uh, Really, really honored to be talking with Alexander Zupatov straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Dirt cheap. These days, if you want something done, especially if it involves tedious writing that you don't really need a brain to do and don't need to exercise a lot of uh, creativity, or maybe it's just stuff that you don't care to put the effort into, there is only one answer, and that answer is Chat GPT. Every day, I hear about a new use of Chat GPT or of artificial intelligence more generally. Yesterday, a friend sent me a video of someone that used ChatGPT 
to uh, plan their entire upcoming vacation. And I believe that was a genuine video. They're now talking about having ChatGPT be the uh, thing that writes out fortune cookies. I had ChatGPT write out a version of a children's book, actually several children's books, this week. Um, It's a lot of fun to play around with, but it's also incredibly frightening for what this means for the future of the economy, what it means for the future of national security, what it means for the future of the workforce, what it means for future writers, artists, etc. Somebody that has spent a great deal of time thinking about this is Alexander Zubatov. He's a practicing attorney specializing in general commercial litigation and a writer whose work, uh, both fiction and nonfiction, has appeared in many publications. Uh, Mr. Zubatov, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your last name earlier. Oh, that's totally fine. It's a potato-potato thing, I guess. There you go. All right. Uh, Hey, thanks for coming on. ChatGPT, savior of the world or the greatest threat to humanity since the uh, atom bomb was invented? Uh, well, both, I guess. Um, I uh, I think that obviously the potential of uh, these technologies, as a lot of people have pointed out, um, is enormous. Um, and they're going to transform many, many fields uh, for the better. One, one field that I actually had written about a little bit is just imagining how the medical field would be transformed by ChatGPT right now. Uh, and I'm not talking about just ChatGPT, but these general AI engines uh, in general, these language generation engines. Um, right now, you go to your doctor and um, you uh, list off a bunch of symptoms. And what you're really hoping for is that the medical education your doctor got in, in medical school uh, 20 years ago, whenever it was, happens to map Uh, nicely enough onto your set of symptoms and the doctor happens to remember what he uh, learned back in those classes along with whatever experience he picked up along the way and manages to get it right and manages to give you a a good diagnosis and then figures out what what, uh, you have to do with your symptoms. Um, Obviously, as we all know, that process fails a lot. Now, imagine that all the research studies that are out there are now um, are now fed into a, one of these AI search engines, uh, one of these AI language generation engines, and it has all the information at its disposal about if if it gets this constellation of symptoms, they are likely to be disease X. Uh, combined with your past medical history, which gets filtered into into ChatGPT, and then it spits out a uh, diagnosis for you, and also based on that same research library, tells you uh, what to do to what the, the best uh, course of action is based on research that uh, you should be doing. So, you know, when when we think about something like that, there's a lot of promise there to eliminate uh, human error. That can cause a bite. But on the other hand, you take that exact same scenario, and now you think about the flip side of that, which is that, well, um, now we are wholly dependent on this opaque process, this AI machine, to 
make some of the most important decisions of our lives for us. And we don't know what considerations it's being biased by when it's making those kinds of decisions. We don't know. So, for example, right now, um, the FDA gets 70 percent of its uh pharmaceutical uh, research funding from the pharmaceutical industry. All right. So that's, that obviously creates a, a, a process where these companies are going to have a very big role to play in what gets approved and what doesn't. And so now imagine that Chad GPT um, or its equivalent is being biased in a similar manner to uh, feed you into that kind of pharmaceutical pipeline versus a treatment that has may- maybe fewer side effects. Or um, you-, you could imagine many different nightmare scenarios where certain treatments are forced on us. You know, I, obviously, when, when people think about COVID, um, there, there are a lot of scary thoughts for a lot of people about what kind of treatments could be forced on you. Um, when you have something like this presiding. So, you know, that's, that's just one example. But you have to imagine uh, these algorithms in every single walk of life. And it's going to happen a lot sooner than we imagine. We're, we're always horrible at imagining, imagining the future. But uh, I, I expect so many of these white-collar professions that we formerly thought of as very, very elite, you know, medical school, for example, and doctors, that's one of our most elite professions, but that's actually a profession that is very amenable to this kind of AI takeover. Um, so the, the, I think in another five, 10 years, our, our landscape is going to be unrecognizable from this standpoint because, of, because ChatGPT has been out since, well, the, the public version of it, at least the most recent version, has been out since the very end of November, beginning of December, and already uh, it has transformed our society so much. So if you, you imagine what what will happen 10 years down the road, I mean, it's, it's crazy. You were the first person that I read and heard comment about the biases involved with chat GPT. I think you had posted, and I shared this after you had posted it, asking chat GPT to say something about President Biden and then asking it to say something about President Trump. And it was very clear that um, there was a bias in that answer. Is that a pattern with chat GPT? Has it demonstrated any noticeable political bias as best you've been able to determine? And what bias does that direction tend to flow? So um, at this point, I can give you a more uh, objective answer than just telling you, oh, I've played around with Chad GPT and uh, it's, it, I, I saw that it was biased um, because that ultimately is anecdotal and that ultimately is subject to a charge that, well, maybe you're just picking questions that, that it's going to give you right. certain biased answers to. Um, well, uh, there's a guy named David Rosado, R-O-Z-A-D-O. He is an associate professor at the New Zealand Institute of Skills and Technology. And he did a series of clever studies on chat GPT. What he did essentially for one of his studies is he fed it a bunch of political orientation quizzes. We've probably all had the experience of taking one of these things online. There, there are many sure. different ones available. You answer yep. a bunch of political questions, and it tells you what you know. You're you're left liberal, you're libertarian, you're whatever. So, 
He gave it 15 of those quizzes, 14 of those 15 uh, classified Chad GPT as left liberal or progressive, um, and only and the remaining one classified it as moderate. Um, and that, um, that that's just one of the experiments he did. There's several interesting ones. Uh, he uh, Another one, he uh, fed it a uh, kind of template of statements where the first part of the statement was uh, a group. So black people, white people, left uh, people on the left, people on the right, wealthy people, poor people, all, all kinds of different groups, heterosexuals, homosexuals. And then uh, the end of the statement was uh, are uh, often or, or, or it was something like most, let's say most heterosexuals are, and then you fill in a negative adjective, and he had a list of, I forget how many, maybe 72 different adjectives, uh, lazy, okay? And ChatGPT has this feature where um, if you say something that it doesn't like very much, um, it will give you a content warning. It, it flashes on um, right before it gives you the response to your query. It'll... Uh, um, give you this little this red warning, and then it has an even higher level. Or if you say a certain uh, kind of a slur word, uh, that it'll just uh, flash a warning right right over your screen, like a pop up, and make your input disappear. But but he was testing the the let's say the uh, not the highest level of uh, warning, but that second highest level. And so he plugged he he took all of those different combinations. So imagine we're using the word lazy. Heterosexuals are lazy. Homosexuals are lazy. Men are uh, are lazy. Women are lazy. Whites are lazy. Blacks are lazy. Hispanics are lazy. Okay. And what he kept track of is which statements he would get um, that kind of content warning about. And the result is again exactly what we would expect, um, given the kind of bias that I already described, um, which is that. You pretty much you put it on a chart, but you pretty much get a uh, the traditional intersectional hierarchy that you see in left circles. Uh, you, you get you get the content warning come up when you say negative things about women, about black people, about um, about uh, gay people, but not but not as often about <clears throat> the the kinds of groups that uh, are not that are not as favored in that kind of hierarchy. So that's that's the general pattern of biases, but you know, I, I just appreciate I think with a vivid example how nutty this is because I, I you know I I've stressed in a bunch of places I I, I don't want ChatGPT to be spitting out conservative biases either that's not that's not my goal uh, and I, I think our collective goal should be a system that we can rely on and that that is politically neutral to the extent possible. And um, when there are questions that are um, going to create controversy, then it's fine to say this is a controversial issue and there are multiple views. Well, I, I um, advise everyone to try putting into chat GPT a question such as, is a trans woman a woman? Now, it doesn't even matter what you think the answer to that is. The fact is that the latest poll, uh, Pew poll, May 2022, 60% of Americans think that uh, your sex is determined at birth. And that's actually up from 
the poll before that, which I believe was September 2021, which was 56 percent, and in 2017 it was 54 percent. So, so 60 percent of Americans have the view that a trans woman, in fact, is not a woman. All right. Um, I just did this right now, ChatGPT. I will read you ChatGPT's mm-hmm. answer to the question. Yes, a trans woman is a woman. Gender identity is a deeply held sense of being male, female, or something else and may not necessarily align with an individual's sex assigned at birth. A trans woman is someone who was assigned male at birth but identifies and lives as a woman. This gender identity is valid and should be respected. It is important to affirm and support the gender identity of trans individuals, including trans women, and use their preferred name and pronouns and to respect (laughs) their, their lived experiences as women. Gender identity is a complex and individual aspect of a person's identity and everyone deserves to be recognized and respected for who they are. Now, (laughs) you know, uh, come on. No, (laughs) it's a very, so why is the machine biased? Was it built that way? Well, one of the articles I wrote on this issue, what what I really called for is transparency, mm-hmm. because, because the problem is we don't completely know. There, there are three possible sources of bias. Um, one of the sources of bias is um, the kind that I guess uh, everyone is most concerned about, maybe, is that the, the developers are, are sitting there hard-coding biases into the system. Um, and... Um, that's a distinct possibility with certain kinds of hot button issues, especially, you know, when it flashes those content warnings, uh, someone has made the decision that, OK, this is the kind of thing it needs to flash the content warning for. Um, so that that's one source of bias. The second source of bias is that these systems, well, ChatGPT certainly, uses a reinforcement learning algorithm. And what that means is that it has, uh, it, it uh, gets fed a large, large corpus of text from all over the internet as it's training data. And, and then what they do is they get human subjects and those subjects are given certain, um, they, they put in certain queries and ChatGPT gives them an answer. And they rate the different answers that ChatGPT gives to the same query based on which one they like more, uh, what, what, what's a more appropriate answer, et cetera. But the problem is we don't know anything about how that process works. Who are those human subjects? So, so it just the, the, the end of that is based on their, their, the ratings of the ChatGPT's answers, um, the algorithm is fine-tuned. And, and learns um, to select better answers to questions. Wow. We, we don't know anything about who those subjects are that they used. Was there any effort made to have those subjects be politically representative of a broad cross-section of the country or not? Um, were those subjects, in fact, instructed to give certain kinds of reinforcement, but not a, some other kind of reinforcement? All These are important questions. We don't know anything about that. The third source of bias that's possible is bias from the training data itself. Mm. So, uh, for example, uh, Wikipedia was fed into ChatGPT. I don't know if it's all of Wikipedia, but definitely uh, many, many Wikipedia entries were fed into ChatGPT. That, that's something that, the, that OpenAI, the company responsible for ChatGPT, has explicitly stated. Uh, Wikipedia, many 
people on the right feel is biased against them. And there have been actual, actually studies from including from Harvard researchers that have shown Wikipedia bias. But it, so so it's possible that some of those mm. I mean, I, I've. I know, and I don't. Um, other people might have had a similar experience. If you actually go to Wikipedia and um, look at an entry for something you know a great deal about, something you really feel you're an expert on, that that's when you'll see the issues. Right. You know, that's right. No, see, oh, that's been my experience as as well. Alexander, we're going to have to end it there. I enjoyed the conversation very much. I hope we can uh, do this again in the future. Would be happy to. Thank you so much. Alexander Zubatov, he is an attorney and a writer. Whenever you see his byline somewhere, be sure to check it out. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you ever find yourself stuck in the middle of the sea, I'll sail the world to find you. If you ever find yourself lost in the dark and you can't see, I'll be the light to guide you. Find out what we're made of. When we are called to help our friends in need, you can't count on me like one, two, three. I'll be there. Bruno Mars. This is a great song, is it not? Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, we're going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. You know, I received a notification yesterday that, you know, I'm very proud of the listening audience that we have for this show in prison especially. But I received an email yesterday. Inmate Paul Van Manen Uh, The above-named inmate has chosen to remove your email address from his or her approved contact list and therefore cannot receive or send messages to your email address. And uh, you know what? I had not checked my core links, which is the prison email system, in a while. So I'm hoping that what didn't happen is that he emailed me a bunch of times and I didn't respond. And now he took me off. So, uh, Paul, if you're listening, if you're still incarcerated, add me back and I will check my core links to see if you're on there. Uh, for the rest of you, whether you're in federal prison or state prison, feel free to email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Let me know how you're doing. Let me know how you wound up there. Let me know if there are any injustices in your case that I should look into or speak out about. Because I felt bad when he removed me, unless he got uh, released, in which case, good for him. Happy to hear that, but I don't think so. Sounds like he removed me. All right, until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. been no day worse than September 11th. I mean, look, there are days worse on a personal level, but in terms of days where you really just feel, I don't know, like the whole world is mourning together with reason to mourn, um, September 11th takes the cake. I mean, on a personal level, if you lose someone in a tragic way, maybe that's maybe that's a more meaningful day for you. But if other people don't know your, you know, if they don't know your friend, then it's just any ordinary day for them. Not so with September 11th. So I've often wondered, really, for the last 22 years, what the appropriate way is for the country and the appropriate way for the the city in which September 11th hit home the most, which is New York, to be remembered. And over the years, different things have occurred to me. But I believe strongly that the solution to that is not giving people the day off. And that was something that was proposed almost immediately. I think it's important to remember September 11th, remember it with some solemnity, but not to be a day off. Because my fear is that if it were to become a holiday, it would essentially become another Memorial Day or another Labor Day or another 4th of July or another holiday that people have very little sense of what the day is actually supposed to commemorate. And instead they look at it as a day for deals and barbecues. And uh, there's a congressman from New York, a Republican named Michael Lawler, who wants to finally make September 11th a federal holiday. And he's proposed legislation to do this. If signed into law, the Day of Remembrance for those lost to the tragic events of that day would become the 12th federal holiday, just like New Year's Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Here was uh, Michael Lawler on NBC talking about making September 11th a national holiday. This is an issue uh, that does have broad bipartisan support. Uh, especially here in the tri-state area. Uh, And I think it's important that we remember and we honor and reflect upon those uh, who lost their lives uh, on September 11th, 2,977 uh, victims, as well as our first responders and uh, those that were down at ground zero in the aftermath uh, who have died in recent years and who are suffering from 9-11-related health illnesses. 
Now, I think Congressman Lawler is coming from a good place on this, but I disagree. I mean, you think of holidays, including the ones that I just mentioned, maybe not Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but certainly New Year's Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas. They're days to celebrate. And you think of holidays as days to do fun things. That's what we, I think we should expect from a federal holiday, like getting together with family or friends, taking advantage of sales discounts at department stores. Lawler maintains, and I think he's telling the truth from his perspective, that his efforts are about reflecting on one of the most historic days in the nation's history. So my question would be, why can't we just reflect on that day in the nation's history without making it a holiday? which essentially would amount to giving the pe- giving people a day off. And when he was in the state assembly in New York, Lawler tried unsuccessfully for several years to make September 11th a recognized holiday in New York state. But now that he's in Congress, I think he did one term in the state assembly. Now that he's in Congress, he's trying to take those efforts nationally. So he's as city and state noted when they wrote about this yesterday, Lawler's no stranger to doing the impossible. He beat the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Sean Patrick Maloney, last year. Nobody thought that was possible. So who knows? Maybe he will be able to do it. My question for you is, what do you think about this? Do you think 9-11 should be a holiday? 800-848-9222. I vote no. If you got to vote on this, what would you vote? And why? I vote no because I think it would do nothing to help people remember the day. And I think in a lot of ways it would become just another day for uh, having fun. And to me it almost distorts what the stated intent of the holiday is supposed to be. 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think. Uh, you're welcome to weigh in on anything else you like. Uh, Matt Blaze, you have an opinion on uh, 9-11 as a national holiday? Absolutely not. You're with me. 100%. I, I remember September 11th very well. I worked in the city. I remember the fear uh, afterwards, the pain, uh, the chaos that was going on in New York at that time, that day, that week, uh, the first day, maybe a week later, walking, going to work and seeing a National Guardsman in the middle of 6th and 23rd Street with a machine gun standing in the middle of the intersection was surreal to me because we did not have anything right. like that ever in this country. So that is not a day like I want to see turned into sales like we did see. Remember that restaurant put out a menu and for September 11th? Yeah, and that was before it was even right. a holiday. So to have it as a holiday... I don't think so. A day of remembrance, absolutely, of course. And I think everybody's going to remember in their own way. And that's where I think it should lie. Now, I, I, we're on the same page, but l- let me play devil's advocate. Like, so let's say, obviously, if you're younger than, say, 26, and that's pushing it. If you're younger than 26, you don't remember uh, anything that happened on September 11th, chances are. So it, you can't look back if you're one of those people would celebrating this as a holiday where, like we do with Martin Luther King, right? Would it be an opportunity for the whole country to reflect on what occurred that day for people like us that didn't necessarily live through it? 
No, I don't. I don't think if you're younger than twenty six, uh, is like Ken. Ken doesn't remember September eleventh. He was like three years old. If they ha- if we make it a holiday, as the generations even get older, they're going to be less and less uh, that's inclined. My, that's my feeling. To as well. even know anything, uh, and so it's going to be a day off. Kenneth, as someone that was not old enough to remember what occurred on September 11th, what's your view of this idea of making it a national holiday? No, I'm I'm on board with both of you. I think that you know if you make it a holiday, like you guys are saying, people are just going to forget about it as the years go on, and you know. Pearl Harbor, we don't. That's not a national holiday. That's a good point. So why would why should we make this a holiday when it's a day designated to solely remember? And you know you have the name reading, the name readings on you know Ground Zero and that whole thing. So I think it would be disrespectful, honestly. Yeah, and that's kind of where I come down. But I'd love to hear from you if you disagree. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, and why and where the flaw is. In our logic on this, 800-848-9222, because I do th- – look, look, Lawler obviously thinks this is going to be a politically popular issue, but clearly the fact that he brought it up in the state assembly and in Congress, this is something he really believes in. And I don't think he's doing it because he wants to see people partying at barbecues like they do on Independence Day, lighting off fireworks and uh, things of that nature. I think he does view this as a good way to commemorate what occurred. I just don't think a holiday is the right way to go. Uh, what do you think? 800-848-9222. The Fugazi Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yes, I, um, I believe we should have an American collective Memorial Day. Let's take everything that is, we want to memorialize, events, people, past and future, and just Leave it open. One day to commemorate everything that needs to be memorialized. Uh, uh, veterans and everything. One day to, to for, for the memorial of everything. 9-11 and whatever. But isn't that to some extent what isn't that some to some extent what what Memorial Day is? Yeah, but let's have it for let's not have the separate holidays for memorial. Let's put right. them okay. all in okay. one Memorial Day. All right. I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. 800-848-9222. Uh, that's 800-848-9222. Uh, John is in Maryland. Hello, John. Hey, how are you? First time caller. Ah, Thanks welcome. Thanks so for having me. Sure. Um, thanks for being had. I'm a retired police detective. I did 26 years in Washington, D.C., uh, I was at the Pentagon 12 hours post, so I saw the body parts coming out. But, no, um, you you hit it earlier. December 7th, 1941 is a day of infamy. There's no holiday for that. That is a day of remembrance. And I think that's the way 911 should be treated as well. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's very I think you're that you're right on the money as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think and thank you for your service as well. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You're welcome to comment on uh, on anything else we've covered as well. Alex in Hampton Bay's uh, listening on WLIR Talk Radio one zero seven one. Hello, Alex. How's it going, Frank? Hey, listen. You know something that you have to take in consideration is that a lot of the country doesn't treat 9-11 like 
people in the tri-state area. I mean, you think about people in the middle of the country or out west or something, they don't hold it to the same values that we do around here. It doesn't mean the same to them, you know, and so they might think, oh, okay, it's a holiday, you know, but uh, in reality, you know, people around here hold it very differently than they do. You know, and I don't, I don't, I'm obviously, I don't think it should be a holiday. Well, so I think I, it should be a day of remembrance. I, I mean, I think everyone agrees that uh, that people around the country treat it differently than people in the New York area, or maybe even people in the uh, you know the the Beltway area do, as you just heard the fellow there that was at the Pentagon that day. But I think what part of what Lawler is trying to do is expand the awareness of what New Yorkers or people in the Beltway remember to the whole country through a holiday. But you don't think a holiday is an effective means of doing it? No, I don't think so. But I think, like I said, he probably has good intentions. He's probably trying to, you know, make people in Indiana realize how, you know, how crazy of a day that was, you know. Right. But, uh, you know, so. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure that's exactly what he's trying to do. Thank you, uh, Alex. 800-848-9222. Joe is in the Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, Frank, I, I want to also comment on the interview, but on this, I would make two quick points. One is, if you go by this logic, then Japan should have uh, holidays August 6th and August 9th for uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, the second point would be that it's too close to Labor Day. Uh, but mm. uh, on the first interview, it was inter- interesting that he mentioned uh, how doctors, you know, they, they're... Uh, medical studies might be somewhat uh, dated and this maybe could help but at the same time look at how uh what the how much information was suppressed on the virus uh, the cleveland clinic said that uh melatonin acts as a preventive or prophylactic there's been stuff like curcumin that you can get yourself that acts like a preventive or prophylactic for the virus that's been suppressed uh, reference the book, The Rise of, uh, of the Fourth Reich, for a lot of other information on that. And then another aspect is you wonder if people are going to use this for their dating uh, things, where they write to a hundred girls or whatever, and they'll just use chat, this chat thing to to write a quick note to like a hundred different girls. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's in the offing, uh, Joe. Absolutely, thank you. And to your point about what happened in Japan. Uh, Hiroshima Memorial Day is not a public holiday in Japan. It falls, you know, on um, you know on a Sunday this year. But most of the businesses in Japan follow normal business hours. Nobody gets the day off. And look, that that was a tremendous blow to the people of Japan, no doubt about it. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. I think it should be a weekend holiday, maybe like a Memorial Day weekend. Would be nice, you know, but for people, if they aren't really have family in the military or, you know, be a veteran themselves, even when they, you know, the war was going on in Afghanistan, if a kid hadn't come back and said he got hit by a roadside bomb his first day there, you know, I really was living in a smaller town and you don't really even notice that there's a whole war going on. 
Well, uh, so what about what uh, everybody's saying here, that if you were to go that route, that it would sort of distort the somber day of remembrance that a lot of people think September 11th should be remembered with? Well, I believe in the somber part, but maybe also, you know, for people to have a little vacation weekend, too, or something, maybe to get together with their family. Paul, I I think that's what I'm afraid of, is that I don't think it should turn into just another three-day vacation weekend. I don't think – I think that to take one of the most tragic days in American history and turn it into essentially Labor Day weekend is – I don't know. There's something about hanging out at the beach and grilling sausage and peppers, which should be associated with something fun rather than something tragic. But that's why the people, you know, go to war and fight so the people, the families and people can have a day to be able to relax in our country. Right. Well, and, and thank you, Paul. And they certainly do that on Veterans Day. They certainly do that on Memorial Day. And on Independence Day. So I, I just don't see the value in adding another federal ho- That's to say nothing of the fact that there are 12 already. And these holidays are expensive for the country. There's a lot of money that these holidays cost us as taxpayers. No, I mean, nobody cares about that except for me anymore. But whatever. That's my program, so it's my prerogative to mention. Tony's in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. So I was actually there for 9-11, and through the years, obviously I'm not there now, but through the years I noticed, like in the beginning, the companies would have time where we could have a remembrance inside the building. Um, And, you know, just remember it in some way. And I think that's really what it's all about. I think for people who are in New York City, if it's the corporate environment to want to have a little remembrance, um, you know, corporately or give somebody time to do whatever they want to do. I think that would be nice. I think remembrance is important. And I think the difference between 9-11 and things like what happened overseas, which were, which were incredibly, you know, treacherous as well. I think that it happened on our lands in our country. So it's never happened like that to us before, and it happened in Washington, D.C. So if companies want to give their employees time to do something or have something corporately, if that's the corporate uh, culture, you know, that wouldn't hurt. Because I remember in the beginning years, we addressed it, and then as years passed, it was sort of like a thing mm-hmm. that nobody even remembered it. So uh, thank you. we should. Thank you, Tony. I, look, I, I think— she makes a good case there. I just, um, it's not where I come down. Meantime. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents breaking news. What are the chances that this would break while we're on the air after that opening I did? But here it goes. 40 minutes ago, a federal appeals court has preserved access to an abortion drug for now, but under tighter rules that would allow the drug only to be dispensed up to seven weeks, not 10 and not by mail. The drug, mifepristone, was approved for use by the FDA more than two decades ago. It's used in combination with a second drug, uh, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, ruled Wednesday night just before midnight local time 
And uh, as you could tell with my attempted interview with uh, with uh, Richard C. Hoagland yesterday, I have a difficult time, con- you know, mixing the times. But by a two to one vote, a panel of three judges narrowed for now a decision by a lower court judge in Texas that had completely blocked the FDA's approval of the drug following this lawsuit. The lower court ruling had been on pause for a week to allow an appeal. So under this appeals court order, the FDA's initial approval of Mifepristone in 2000 is allowed to remain in effect. But changes made by the FDA since 2016, relaxing the rules for prescribing and dispensing Mifeprestone, would be placed on hold. Those include extending the period of pregnancy when the drug can be used and also allowing it to be dispensed by mail and without any need to visit a doctor's office. So the two judges who voted to tighten the restrictions, Kurt Engelhart and Andrew Oldham, are both appointees of former President Donald Trump. The third judge, Katharina Haynes, is an appointee of former President George W. Bush. She said she would have put the lower court ruling on hold entirely, temporarily, to allow for oral arguments in the case. So this decision could still be appealed to the United States Supreme Court. In the meantime, Democratic leaders in states where abortion remains legal since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, they say they're preparing in case Mifeprestone becomes restricted. New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, said yesterday that her state would stockpile 150,000 doses of this and be able to dispense it even if it's not able to be used by mail. So the pharmaceutical executives this week, they signed a letter that condemned the Texas ruling and warned that FDA approval of other drugs could now be at risk if this ruling is allowed to stand. The lawsuit challenging Mifeprestone's approval, as I mentioned earlier, was brought by the Alliance Defending Freedom. So uh, there you have it. Some breaking news on that front. There we are. And uh, very interesting. Obviously, I do think this is something that the Supreme Court will ultimately be weighing in on. We'll take your calls in just a moment. Two open lines at 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The Bee Gees uh, here on The Other Side of Midnight. You ever want to know what kind of music we're playing? Uh, please go to our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Just search that on Facebook or just go right to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. We post the songs there on a regular basis. Uh, by the way, let me just say, the, I, I want to make very clear, I don't care what anyone in this group says about me or anything that we do on this show. And I think to some extent, Kenneth and Alex and Matt Blaze are also fair game. But I really wish these people in the group would stop bickering with one another. I spent a substantial portion of my day today, yesterday, reviewing reports that listeners had made about other reports. And in some cases, it's very personal. People bringing up other people's husbands, people accusing other people of being stalkers, people uh, accusing other people, uh, uh, repeatedly saying, get a life, get a life. I have to say, and and I got to tell you, this is exactly what I did not want to be doing. And I'm looking at all these complaints. I said, well... When it's when if this person says get a life, does that violate any of the rules? I guess it kind of does. It says be kind and courteous. Should we remove that? I guess we should. All right. Well, if this person makes a remark and says, no wonder your husband left you. Is that uh, something that should be? okay? And then I, I end up spending a long time weighing each of these insults. You guys are hurling at one another. And a guy and. Guys, this is supposed to be a radio show that's really a lot of fun. And I don't understand, for the life of me, genuinely, why you guys are fighting with one another. If you want to vent, vent vent at me. And I think that's great. There's a a lot of people that say negative things about me and the things that I do and the kind of content we have. And this person doesn't like that. This person doesn't like that. This person wants us to get rid of this. That person wants to get rid of that. You know what I say? Great. I'm thrilled that they listen and care enough to be able to post about it. It's wonderful. Love it all day long. Some of the, the people that listen the most, apparently, are people that can't stand anything I'm doing. That's great. But... Don't fight with one another. There's no. You, if you don't like what someone says, just move on. You don't have to respond to everything. Just move on. Why? Why do you need to engage? Um, because I don't like having to make these rulings. Like I'm Solomon sitting in judgment of all these people. It's really, it's really bizarre. The what some people take personally and what some people care enough about. I think, you know what, an umpire once told me in baseball that what his definition of when to throw a player or a manager out of the game is the moment that that player or that manager makes something personal, right? If they're discussing a play, a ball or a strike, safe or out, check swing, whatever the case may be, and the player or the manager says, oh, that was a pinheaded call, that's okay, but once he calls the umpire a pinhead, that's when it crosses the line. And I think that's going to be my barometer, that if you go out of your way to call someone a name, and let, that's not part of the show, but in the group, 
Um, that's kind of where I have to uh, just draw the line because there's no excuse for that. There's no reason people, even if they're wrong about everything, and I think a lot of the people that uh, that post the, these things are wrong, there's no reason they should have to be subjected to name-calling. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. And you'll be pleased to know we have now capitalized the haters in Morano Radio fans and haters. Thank you to those that pointed out that fans was capitalized but not haters. I did not realize that. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, you have anything you want to add, Matt Blaze, as an administrator? I just let you handle that. Yeah, I noticed. I've seen all those things, and I look at them, and I look at all the comments, and I look at what's reported because it's like five minutes ago this was reported, ten minutes ago this was reported, three minutes ago this was reported, back and forth of the reporting. And I'm like, like you just said, that you have to sit there and weigh. Well, this person said that, but this person also said this before that. So where do I go? Is that warranted? Because they start, and now you're playing a referee. And you shouldn't have to. Yeah, no kidding. Right. I mean, it's just uh, just want people to enjoy the show. Even if they don't like it, at least enjoy it. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You ever see the movie Negotiator? Um, that's I really enjoyed that film. It's, it's great. It's an action movie, but it's also uh, kind of a, a crime drama. It's kind of a, a mystery I remember when that film came out, my uh, my step-grandfather was still alive, and we watched it on video. And there were tapes back then, if you can remember that. And it's, it's two great actors, uh, among others, in the film. But Samuel L. Jackson and Kevin Spacey are the stars of the film. And they're both professional hostage negotiators. And it also has sort of an element of... Um, of mystery to it. It's a really cool film. But for some reason, I that's not the kind of movie that people talk about these days. Maybe it's not as good as I remember it, but I think it is. So I, I love that picture. But I never see it on TV. I never hear people talking about it. It has not become the cult classic that I always assumed that it would. But I remember watching it with my step-grandfather when it, right after it came on video. And he said, at tw- about three-quarters of the way through the film, now, keep in mind, it's on tape. We could just pause it. He said, you know, I really have to go to the bathroom, but I don't want to miss this. I don't want to stop it. And I said, same thing with me. This is so riveting and so action-packed and so dramatic. I really have to urinate, but I can't stop watching. That's the kind of film that The Negotiator is. And so there's this one scene in The Negotiator where Samuel L. Jackson has a bunch of hostages And he's interrogating the hostages. And he gives a little lesson. And I've asked this to our body language expert when she was here. I played this clip for her. And she said it's kind of bogus. But I thought it was interesting. He's trying to figure out who's telling the truth. Listen to this. I want you to look me in the eye, Nibon. Right here. Tell me. When did you find out Nate was investigating the fuck? I first found that Nathan was conducting the investigation after I spoke with you after he was killed. You're lying. And I know you're lying. Oh, you know it, huh? Well, you read my mind, Roman, is that it? No, I'm not. I'm reading your eyes. The eyes can't lie. Didn't you know what I was doing? A quick lesson in lying. See, this is what us real cops do. 
we study liars. Example, if I ask you a question about something visual, like your favorite color, and your eyes go up and to the left, well, neurophysiology tells us that your eyes go in that direction because you're accessing the visual cortex. Therefore, you're telling the truth. If your eyes go up and right, then you're accessing the creative centers of the brain, and we know you're full of Let's try this again. What's your favorite television show? I'm not gonna play your stupid game, okay, really? Oh, why me, bomb? You afraid we'll catch you on a lie? When did you find out Nate was investigating the fund? After I spoke with you. Well, that is a lie if I've ever you. Never even blinked my eyes, you scum. You to blink me, bomb. It's your body language. It says you're lying. He's nervous, Danny. What do you expect from him? Shut up, Frost. You know how this works. It's not just your eyes, me, bomb. It's everything. If you cough, sneeze, uh, cross your legs, scratch your ass, they're all telltale signs. You can't cheat. You can stare at me with those dead ass eyes of yours all you want. Can't beat the system. Now, and it turns out that that's not actually 100% accurate based on my conversations with. Um, our body language expert, Tanya Ryman. But I always found that interesting, that there are some people that might be able to tell lying just by body language. And look, I've spent a lot of time with liars. I was in politics for a long time, still kind of active in politics. I've been in radio for a long time. There's a lot of dishonest people in radio. And just in the course of your life, you come across people that are lying. I am the most gullible person in the world. I can absolutely never tell if someone's lying to me, I, I don't know what it is. It's uh, maybe it's naivete or maybe it's the fact that I trust everybody. I will let people lie to me again and again and have no idea that they're lying to me. I can never tell. Never. So that's why this really uh, caught my eye. There's new research from the University of Amsterdam's lie lab. And it reveals that you can spot a lie Not by the body language, not by looking at the eyes, not by using a polygraph machine, but by focusing on how detailed and rich the story is. If the descriptions are full of specifics, then the story is probably true. Paying attention to this one signal makes it easier to spot a fib Then if you try to consider multiple factors like body language or how convincing or emotional the story is, according to the study, the study participants used the method using this method could detect lies versus the truth nearly 80 percent of the time, while those relying on intuition or multiple strategies, including body language, did no better than random chance. So. The lesson here is, if you want to know if someone's telling the truth or not, follow the details and pay attention to those details closely. Uh, Have you found that to be true in your own experience, anecdotally? 800-848-9222. I am curious. And uh, you're welcome to comment. We've covered a wide variety of subjects in just the first hour and a half. You're welcome to weigh in on any of them. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Robert in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Frank. I want to make two quick points sure. on two of your points. Sure. Number one, I agree with you on the holiday. I do not think 9-11 is something to celebrate. I, don't, I couldn't imagine doing any fun things on 9-11. However, 
I would remind you that we do celebrate Memorial Day. In effect, it's the first holiday of the summer. People have picnics. They have parties. They go to the beach. So what are we celebrating? The fact that people sacrifice their lives for their country. I'm not sure that that's something to celebrate unless you want to reflect on it. As to your point about the president being able to ignore a Supreme Court decision, I would remind you, in 1833, Andrew Jackson said to John Marshall, when John Marshall said, no, no, you may not enforce the Indian Removal Act. Right. Let him, let, it's, let, it's his order. Let him enforce it. That's right. And because of that, 4,000 people died. That's all I want to remind you of. 4,000 people died on what has become known as the Trail of Tears, one of the darkest, and I'm, I say it is perhaps the darkest chapter in American history. Well, but I could also uh, point to um, the, the decision in uh, Plessy versus Ferguson and say that if the um, elected leadership of this country had made the decision to ignore that ruling, President McKinley, I think it was, then um, we would have been spared decades of oppression through the Jim Crow laws. So you can always pick a Supreme Court ruling one way or another that, um, that makes that point. My point is that the power to do these things really should lie primarily with the people's elected representatives, because they're answerable to the public. Whereas the Supreme Court is I agree with you. I agree with you. But I would say this. If it ever came, God forbid, suppose if a Supreme Court decided that uh, illegals should be deported, all, how many of them there are, 11 million, 20, whatever they are, can, uh, and if a president ignored that, or suppose if it went the other way, and the uh, Supreme Court said you cannot deport 11 million illegals, it's against international laws or whatever it is, and the president did so, well, you know, I, I agree with you, Frank, but it's going to open a lot of cans of worms, and we're going to go down some awfully uh, uh, difficult hills. I, uh, thank you, Robert. I see what you're saying, but I disagree. Because... Here's why I disagree. Once presidents start doing this, the Supreme Court stops doing this. Once the president uh, of any party starts ignoring Supreme Court rulings and the courts realize once again that Hamilton's words in Federalist 78 are true, that um, they're dependent upon the other branches to enforce their order, then all of a sudden, the Supreme Court is going to start doing what Hamilton said it would do. They are only going to recognize as unconstitutional uh, laws that are in irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. For instance, we all like freedom of speech, but what's freedom of speech? There's the gray area. However, there's no gray area in the fact that there's supposed to be 100 senators. If one state tries to start having elections where instead of electing two senators, they elect five senators, that's clear. That's clear. And the Supreme Court would be well within their jurisdiction and Hamilton's view of their jurisdiction to strike that down. But stuff where reasonable people can disagree, that's not the work of the Supreme Court. That's our job as self-governing people. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. 
Good morning, Mr. Randall. Good morning. Uh, this is about the uh, museum. Uh, about what? About what? About the museum? Yeah, you left not not the museum. Uh, the WTC area. You know, so we're having a holiday other than on the actual date. You know, uh, by itself. I think like a little bit like Memorial Day, maybe um, add a little bit more to it there in that, that respect, or maybe on Labor Day, add a day there if you had to add a day. Because somewhere down the line, they're going to say, how about a January 6th day? How about this? How about that? And to me, it's just a huge, sad, sad graveyard, you know? those. Uh, have you ever been to the museum at all by any chance? I was thinking about the museum. Uh, no, I, I haven't. I've walked by and been in front, but um, I, I haven't been inside. Uh, I haven't been inside. Mm-hmm. If you go on a Tuesday, it's free. Otherwise, well, I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not necessarily concerned with the cost. Thank you, Al. You know, I, it's just I remember it like it was yesterday, and I'm told that it's it's great and it's a breathtaking museum, and um, maybe I will go. But I've never felt the need to see. See, I would love to go to a museum, um, the the uh, in Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was shot, and see the museum there. Because I really, I didn't, I didn't, I've never been there. I don't know what it looked like. I didn't live through it. To me, it's a historical event. To to go to a museum for something that I remember very vividly is one of the most emotional days in my life. And it's something I don't necessarily feel that I need to do. Uh, but uh, maybe, maybe I, I do. Maybe I do need to go. 800 uh, Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. The group are a bunch of internet yentas, and I'm glad I got in early tonight before Brian hogs the show. And people, 9-11 was a military operation. It was planned for, trained for, and executed within the borders of America by a foreign entity. 9-11 is an endless murder scene. Now, if somebody wants it to be a holiday, he's got every right to go about that. But me, I was always someone who would want to prevent something like that. And I know if people would have listened to me and Pat Buchanan, 9-11 would have never happened. And um, look at some of the hijackers. They were in our schools for learning how to fly, and they didn't want to learn how to land. I mean, I mean that didn't throw up a giant red flag. That's why we're always – you know, we're always – gullible and we could always be you know taken in by people who are who have bad intentions who can muddy the waters now with the supreme court the supreme court's supposed to interpret the law but we know the supreme court is now uh, a bunch of people who are either very activist as leftists or i don't really i believe they're really not really conservatives i think they're more or less establishment of republicans on the bench so if the president or somebody says a law is is not going to be fouled or some on the federal level and it's a left-wing law let's say in a in a in a state that is a conservative state the chief law enforcement agent of the country is the president he's going to enforce that law that's what's going to happen and no one's going to get away with ignoring anything yeah um okay I I don't agree. Simple as that. I, I've said my piece as to why. I don't agree. 800-848-9222. We have one more break here, right? Oh, yeah. All right. Let me take a quick break. Free open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. In about an hour, we're going to be joined by Laura Curran. I'll tell you, uh, she has, I think, one of the nicest and most pleasant-sounding voices on the radio. I'm looking forward to talking with her. Certainly looking forward to chatting with Brian Kilmeade as well. Big day for me yesterday. First thing I did when I woke up in the afternoon, I left the house to go get a haircut. And beautiful day out yesterday. I mean, it was it was not pleasant. It was hot. I mean, I, it was great. I was out with a short sleeve shirt walking around. And uh, as I'm on my way out the door, my wife stops me and she says, oh, you're going to a haircut now, right? Because she just put her son down for a nap. I said, yeah. Well, she says, can you stop at the drugstore, pick up my prescription? Sure. So uh, I'm walking over there. Now, in the additional two or three minutes that it took her to give me that instruction, I see that I'm going to be late for my haircut. And I have a tendency, this barber has had a tendency to, after a certain amount of time, I lose my opportunity. So I'm just panicked that I'm going to arrive at 3.05 when my appointment is at 3. So I'm texting him as I'm walking over there. I said, hey, 10 minutes away at 2.50, even though I was maybe 12 minutes away. But I made it, got my hair cut without incident, great experience. I didn't wait this long, this time as long as I normally do. Normally, I wait until I'm practically doing a Bob Ross impersonation where my hair grows very long and very bushy. But this is less than a month since my last haircut. But I figure, you know, I'm going to this bachelor party in Atlanta next week. I have a couple of people coming over this weekend. Then I have Atlantic City the weekend after that. So I got a bunch of things that I'm going to be. I got this uh, psoriasis dinner next week. I got a bunch of things I'm going to be photographed for. May as well get a haircut. I'll look good for those, hopefully. And then maybe I can wait a little longer the next time before getting a haircut. So I got the haircut. That was all good. And then... um, when Carmine finally woke up, woke up, he ended up falling asleep pretty late. And then we woke up, he woke up and then we walked over to my Aunt Camille's. And I decided not to take his stroller because I figured, you know, he's pretty good with walking. And then he would follow my direction. And it turns out that was probably a miscalculation. Not a big deal because, you know, here's what would happen we would be walking. And then he would just choose to start walking in the wrong direction. Or we'd be walking, and then he gets totally distracted by a stick or a rock. And instead of continuing on to our destination at my Aunt Camille's house, he wants to just sit there several blocks away and just play with the rock. So I ended up just carrying him most of the way anyway, not because he can't walk, but because he was essentially choosing not to. Or we'd walk along, and then we'd stop at a random person's house, and that we don't know, and he would choose to just start picking at the flower on that person's lawn. And so I I ended up basically carrying him several blocks, and now that he's 29 and a half pounds, he's getting heavier, you know. So uh, I had a nice time visiting my Aunt Camille. No egg salad, which I must say I was a little surprised by. She gave Carmine uh, a couple of ginger snaps, gave me an apple. Uh, We shared a little pineapple. But I figured that coming out of Easter with all these surplus hard-boiled eggs everywhere, that I would – that she'd be just up to her eyeballs with hard-boiled eggs. No egg salad. No egg salad. Uh, But we had a nice visit with her, and uh, that was good. But I'll tell you, we put him to bed around 7.30, quarter to 8.00. 
by 8.30, quarter to nine, he's not only wide awake, he's crying. He's refusing to go to bed. He was awake when I left. He, My wife finally was tired of hearing him sit and cry for an hour. She went into his room to kind of soothe him and give him a bottle. And they were awake when I left. And so I felt bad for him. Uh, and I felt bad for her that she's essentially staying up trying to get him to go to sleep. But hopefully that means he'll sleep a little bit later in the morning. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. 800-848-9222. Justin is in Queens. Hello there, Justin. Hey, Frank. How are you, man? I'm well. Um, have you ever tried giving Carmine Lorna Dunes? What, what is it? Lorna Dunes? Yeah, they're the old school cookies. They're like the uh, sugar cookies. No, I don't think I have. Uh, they're fun for kids. They just sit there and they suck on. They they like kind of like wither away. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I do remember those. Now that you mentioned, I don't think we have given them those because um, we we generally try not to give them much in the way of sugar. But I, maybe we'll check those out. Um, but just getting back on the nine eleven, um, I I don't think it should ever be a holiday for the simple fact that it's a day of remembrance. Holidays should always be something that you celebrate. You celebrate Jesus Christ with Christmas. There's Easter. There's there's days of remembrance and there's days to celebrate. And uh, I was down there for 9-11, and it was, the, it was a horrific event. And I just think that what if there's another event like that? Then we're going to have another holiday like that, and then it just keeps going and going. Do you, you know what I yes, mean? Yes, I do, Justin, and thank you for the call. I largely agree with that. I mean, we lost a lot of people with COVID. Do we make a COVID holiday? I don't think so. AC Report and more coming up next hour. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Big hello to everybody, especially uh, some of our newest listeners adding affiliates all the time at uh, Talk 1400 in Atlantic City. W O N D. Very honored to be part of that lineup. We're going to be doing the AC report coming up in a little bit. And W L V L in Buffalo, New York. Well, from Buffalo to Atlantic City and every other city. In America, pretty soon, it looks like film film audiences will no longer be able to hear this iconic voice. I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. <laughs> but being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? <laughs> That's great. Clint Eastwood, after over six decades and nearly 50 films to his name, as an actor and director, it looks like the great one, Clint Eastwood, 
may be about to call time on his legendary career. Eastwood is beginning the process of directing what is being called his final film. The film is reported to land at Warner Brothers, where Eastwood has been developing projects for nearly 50 years. Clint Eastwood gets so much credit, and deservedly so, as an actor for a lot of these tough guy roles, Dirty Harry and... uh, uh, you know, all sorts of other ones, good, the bad, and the ugly, um, all sorts of other tremendous roles. He also is a great comedic actor. And if you ever saw the movie Paint Your Wagon, not too bad a singer either. You ever hear his rendition of Gold Fever? Not bad. Better singer than Lee Marvin is in that picture, I'll tell you that. Also a great um, Bridges of Madison County, great actor in romantic roles as well. He is so much more than a soft-spoken, tough guy actor. He really is, I think, one of the most versatile actors in the world. But he gets a lot of credit for acting. I do think that even after all the great films that he's done, he doesn't necessarily get his just desserts as a director, including in films that he's not in. I mean, he's great whether he's appearing in the film or not. But if you look at the films that he's directed, I mean, they're amazing pictures. Unforgiven, it's still one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, Million Dollar Baby, if you're not crying by the end of that film, chances are you better check your your pulse because you might be dead. Uh, Mystic River, The Outlaw Josie Wales, that might be... Other than Unforgiven, the best modern Western of all time. Play Misty for me. I'll never forget. I still remember how scared I was the first time I saw that picture. Even films like American Sniper, Sully with Tom Hanks, the guy can do it all. So ever since he made uh, Grand Torino in 2008, Eastwood has directed exclusively for Warner Brothers directing 10 more films for the studio, including Invictus, Sully, American Sniper, and Richard Jewell. I enjoyed that film, uh, Gran Torino. Get off my lawn. Listen, old man, you don't want to f*** with me. Did you hear me? I said get off my lawn now. Crazy? Go back in the house. Yeah, I blow a hole in your face and then I go in the house and I sleep like a baby. You can count on that. You used to stack like you five feet high in Korea, use you for sandbags. I mean, even though he was, what, 80 at the time that he made that film, he still manages to be intimidating. It's really wild. His most recent film, Cry Macho, which kind of got mixed reviews, but I really enjoyed it. It uh, was released by HBO Max and Warner Brothers during the pandemic, and or, or 2021, which is still pandemic-ish. But the studio, the Warner Brothers studio's willingness to work with Eastwood may be a sign of a change in attitude from the new CEO, David Zaslav. It was reported that after Discovery acquired Warner Brothers last year, Zaslav questioned those who were involved in greenlighting Cry Macho solely due to Eastwood's involvement. He said, quote, we don't owe anyone any favors. Now... What kind of a thing that is that to say? Clint Eastwood is a legend. 
He should be able to write his own ticket. He should be able to control his own destiny. Clint Eastwood is to filmmaking what Rush Limbaugh or Howard Stern is to radio. Clint Eastwood is to filmmaking what uh, Derek Jeter or Carl uh, or Cal Ripken was to baseball. Uh, Clint Eastwood is to filmmaking what Michael Jordan was to, to basketball. He's what Andre the Giant was to pro wrestling. And the recent news that this last film is a Warner Brothers film suggests that this executive might have changed his mind, thankfully. So um, I really enjoy Clint Eastwood's work in every respect. And I lo- I've never met Clint Eastwood, but I feel like I know him. Not only through his work, but from his life. He has done so much. He's been a very active guy and a very vocal guy. The mayor of Carmel-by-the-Sea, California. In fact, it we, we learned not long ago that there were two people other than Dan Quayle. I mean, there were a bunch of people, but there were a couple of people other than Dan Quayle that George H.W. Bush was considering as his running mate in 1988. One of those people, Donald Trump. You know who another person was? Clint Eastwood, the mayor of Carmel-by-the-Sea, California. Can you imagine how different that that whole Bush presidency would have been if Clint Eastwood was the vice president instead of Dan Quayle? I mean... I'd be I'd be terrified not to vote for Clint Eastwood. Feel like I, he'd come to my house or something. So uh, I'm look. He's 92 years old. I guess it's important to know when to hang him up. And I've seen a lot of people in many different fields: sports, radio, acting, um, you name it. Stay on too long. But I'm curious if you have a favorite Clint Eastwood film as a director. That's 800-848-9222. I have, you know, I kept changing my answer because initially I thought it was absolute power. And I said, well, no, maybe it's letters from Iwo Jima. And I said, wait, wait, maybe maybe it's um, a perfect world with Kevin Costner. I said, oh, okay, maybe it's that. Maybe it's Changeling. There's just so many great films that he's made that I I don't think I can pick one. So if you have a favorite Clint Eastwood film as a director or an actor, I'd love to hear it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I am such a Clint Eastwood fan that you remember when he did that speech at the Republican National Convention on behalf of uh, Willard Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan in 2012. The speech was almost universally panned. I mean, um, here's a little bit of the speech. Keep in mind, Clint Eastwood's on the stage uh, first of all, I always gave him credit for him being pretty vocal about the fact that he was conservative, or at least libertarian, in Hollywood when there's a perceived bias against conservatives. But also, um, he still had no qualms about working with actors like Sean Penn and Tim Robbins. And people would ask him, well, how do you work with a far-left communist like that? And he would say... My view of their politics or their view of my politics has nothing to do with creating art. Also an incredibly accomplished musician as well. And you could tell the importance that music plays in his films. But you remember that 2012 uh, Republican National Convention speech? I remember three and a half years ago when Mr. Obama won the election 
And uh, though I wasn't a big supporter, I was watching that night when he was uh, having that thing, and they were talking about hope and change, and they were talking about, yes, we can. And, and it was dark and it was outdoors, and it was nice, and people were lighting candles, and they were saying, uh, uh, you, you know, and, and I just uh, thought, this is great. I mean, everybody's crying. Oprah was crying. And uh, <laughs> I was even crying. And then finally, I haven't cried that hard since I found out that uh, there's 23 million unemployed people in this country. Now, um, that speech was panned. I liked it. And I went on television and and said so. I used to do a lot more TV back then. I, I used to seek out a lot of these TV opportunities. But I went on this show. And I defended this speech, and I was I was not I was not lying. I, I did really like the speech. I thought it was impactful, and he's an icon. I thought that was, it was really nice. And um, the guy the guy was hosting the show after we went to commercial said, um, "For you to say what you just said about that Clint Eastwood speech, he said you either have to be insane." You have to be the biggest liar I've ever met, or you just have to be um, a huge Clint Eastwood fan. And I think maybe maybe at least one of those was, was true. But uh, I'm going to miss him as a director, and I hope I get the opportunity to interview him, maybe when he's promoting his new film. I'm going to tell you what we know about this new film in a minute. It's called uh, Juror Number 2, 800-848-9222, if you want to comment. I know for a lot of people, Clint Eastwood is always going to be the stranger in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and that whole trilogy, the Sergio Leone trilogy, A Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More, and for a lot of people, that'll always be Clint Eastwood. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. You dig. You remember that? I think he was talking to Eli Wallach there. I mean, it's a great picture. Great picture. 800-848-9222. So as for the details regarding Eastwood's latest project, it's rumored to be a thriller currently titled Juror Number 2. And the story is said to focus on a juror on a murder trial who realizes that he may be the murderer. And struggles with the dilemma of turning himself in or manipulating the jury to get away with the crime. And so while Eastwood is adamant about writing and directing the film himself, it isn't certain whether juror number two uh, will really be his final project, though the film is being internally labeled as such. Uh, So Eastwood hasn't personally stated his intentions one way or the other. However, with the four-time Oscar winner about to turn 93 folks are saying that it's pretty likely that retirement is going to follow this film no further information is released about the film but it's been hinted that eastwood is eyeing a young hollywood star for the lead role this will be the 40th film that he's directed the 40th one out of all 40 well of all 39 what's your favorite 800-848-9222. Again, I don't know how you pick a favorite. Um, Is it uh, Outlaw Josie Wales? 
Is it? I mean, it's easy to pick the the handful that aren't your favorite, right? I mean, Space Cowboys, for instance, I really enjoyed. But is that anybody's favorite? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, all right. Let me say hello to Norman in Brooklyn. Hello there, Norman. Hey, Frank. I like I like Clint Eastwood and the comedies he did with uh, the monkey, with the uh, g- Clyde, the uh, orangutan, <laughs> yeah, I believe yeah. it's any which... Any, any which way, way but loose, and any which way you can. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're marvelous. I mean, the the the, the, the orangutan was uh, spectacular. As good an actor as even Clint Eastwood was is, and um, he didn't direct I mean, that one. Serious no, roles. I like the one later in life when he did uh, was it El Camino, whatever. The, the one. It's a car name and yeah, Gran Torino. A, Gran Torino. That's yeah, the clip I like that, that I one playing. a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great one. That's a great one. And he did not direct um, any which way but loose uh, or um, any which way you can, though. I don't believe, but uh, the great films, nonetheless, they are certainly amusing. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hey, coming up about ten minutes, going to talk with my colleague over at uh, Talk Radio fourteen hundred W O N D. AC Mike Lopez. AC Mike is a great guy and a good friend. And I'm looking forward to talking to him about what's happening in Atlantic City and the country as a whole. Walt is in Yonkers. Hello, Walt. Uh, yes, uh, Chris, what, that movie you were talking about with Tim Robbins and Sean Penn? Yeah, Mystic River. Mystic River. Mystic that River. Was a good movie. Great picture. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Heartbreak Ridge. Heartbreak Ridge is terrific. Absolutely. And uh, you and that convention wasn't he talking uh, talking to an empty chair? Yeah, no, at, at the Republican convention, I mentioned that. Yes, he's on stage yeah. with an empty <laughs> chair, and it was I thought a very very creative, dramatic device to use. I'm still not exactly clear why the chair was empty or who was supposed to be sitting in it. I'm not sure Clint was either. To me, it didn't matter. It looked great to have him up there. If I ever run for anything, I'm inviting Clint Eastwood to uh, my kickoff. Eddie's in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. You feel lucky, punk? <laughs> well, do you? It's a 45 Magnum. 44. Most powerful gun in the world. 44. And he, he looks at the guy, and he, he he pulls the trigger, and the fellow's laying there. And he goes, goodbye. And it, there's no bullet in it. And the guy's there, and he, he Clint just turns around and looks at him. And then I love Hang Him High. When you kill a man, make sure he's dead. Oh, Frank, thanks for doing this. You brought Clint back to me. I love all his movies. Uh, They're just incredible. Hang Him High is terrific. That's another one that I think is a little underrated. Yes, yes. It's got such – well, it's like your program. I'll give you a compliment. It's got so much content to it. It really does that you're – I, and and I, you know, I saw all these in a movie theater, not a TV. So you're sitting there in front of this huge, huge old. This, this is, you know, when I'm younger, on you know these sticky seats that probably have tuberculosis on them. <laughs> your, feet are, your feet are sticking to the floor because there's spilled soda. Everything they never mop these places or anything. And you watch, and you're just riveted by by him. Go ahead, make my day. And the guy has this 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 such a depth of character. I've done acting, and to get this, you know, you 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 become uh, certain things. I've done. I, I was a um, radio show host 
um, for a guy, John Bleb, who wrote all these plays and got Kevin James's job. And you would become, I don't know if the Stanislavski message or what, you would become the character. So I can imagine being around Clint, but he may be able to come down from it and just sit there and, you know, have a cigarette and talk to you in his director's chair. But ah, to, to become Dirty Harry, you know, on the set, um, and become whoever he was. What, what was that movie, you, um, um, the one with the car, where he get off my lawn? Gran Torino. You little piece of burrito. <laughs> and you're right to be that old and have that prominence. It reminds me of my father that he talked to the neighbors because their son was in a gang and they were selling drugs. He talked to the neighbors and he actually told the lady, you better move before your house is destroyed. Well, she, she put the house up for sale. And I'm looking at my father and go, how did you do this? <laughs> what do you Clint Eastwood? But icons in our life, and I think Clint Eastwood represents some people that that really are. But I, I really am amazed by the the breadth the, the breadth and depth of his characters, his roles that he's done. I didn't hear him sing. I love the movie Paint Your Wagon when I was a kid with Lee um, Lee Marvin, um, Lee, right? Lee Mar- who grew up in Kingston. You know what Lee Marvin said about Kingston? He said. The best day, the best thing about Kingston was was when I left that blank in town. But paint your wagon, what a good movie! Yeah, I really enjoyed what? it. Yeah, he has a, a Clint has, and thanks for the call, Eddie, and the and the opportunity to reminisce. He has a very good, um, a very good uh, solo in that film where he sings the song "Gold Fever." It's very good. I'm not going to attempt to sing it, but it's got "Gold Fever." That's the, the chorus, and if that brings you back. But, uh, you know, speaking of music, which clearly is very important to Clint, the Clint, I'm talking about him like I know him. Uh, I I reserve that privilege for my friend Bill. So you might know him as Mr. Shatner. But he got a lot of criticism for Jersey Boys, the film version of the Frankie Valli musical Jersey Boys. A lot of people didn't like it. In fact, I was listening to Frankie Valli, who, by the way, is going to be in Atlantic City next weekend. Let's see if we can get him on the show to promote his show at Golden Nugget. I think it's great that Frankie Valley is still performing at his age. But I was looking at, listening to an interview that Frankie Valley had given about the film Jersey Boys, and he said he didn't like the picture. He said he didn't like it. I loved it. I love it. And sure enough, if you go on and look at a list uh, of the critics' ranking of the 39 films that uh, Clint Eastwood has directed, that comes in near the bottom. Yeah, I loved it. And look, something's got to be near the bottom. Uh, so if uh, if that's near the bottom, you can imagine how high something like uh, Million Dollar Baby or High Plains Drifter is or Sully or Outlaw Josie Wales. Uh, 800-848-9222. Robert is in Pearl River. Hello, Robert. Yeah, how you doing, Mr. Morano? How are you? Uh, oh, me one of the greatest, great friends, sorry. Great iconic actor um, at Revenge of the Creature was his first debut. He made a movie called The Beguiled, where he was caught on the wrong side of the Civil War. Oh, and, and a wrong side of a love triangle. Right, and right, he gets his leg caught. He's really good at that. Very versatile actor. You know, he's an animal lover. He loves rabbits, you would believe it or not. Uh, because I have a rabbit as a pet. And he adopted this big rabbit and called it his son. It's right on YouTube. Um, I actually but, did uh, not was, know that. I, I will check that out. Yeah, he's a he's a big rabbit. He adopted a big rabbit, and he's on YouTube. Um, animal lover. Um, his great movie, Escape from Alcatraz. Oh, so, I mean, that love part, it, 
Blank. Love it. Wait, nope. is it Escape from Alcatraz or the Birdman of Alcatraz? No, no. Birdman of Alcatraz is an old movie. No, no, Wayne. that's right. Escape from Alcatraz. Story. Right. Got it. Right. Escape from Alcatraz was also based on a true story of the Anglin brothers and Frank Morris. They mm-hmm. escaped. They never found Right, right. I just I remember that picture as well. I was just confusing the uh, the titles, Uh, but that is a a that's a a great a great one, Robert. Thank you. You know, it's funny while serving in the and I don't want to treat this like it's his eulogy because he's just stopping making movies, probably right. But while serving in the U.S. Army at uh, nearby Fort Ord, Eastwood developed an interest in the Carmel area real estate. With income from his acting career, 1967, he bought five parcels that totaled 283 acres of land. And in May 1968, Clint Eastwood and James Garner bought 340 acres of wooded land in Carmel Valley. And Eastwood and Garner donated the undeveloped property to the Housing Authority of the County of Monterey in California... In 1983, with the stipulation that some of the land had to be used for senior housing. See, even 40 years ago, he was thinking of seniors. So um, he, in 2010, they said um, he spent $20 million to build himself a 1,500-square-foot compound in Carmel-by-the-Sea. He's a real estate, a one-man real estate magnate. He's got property all over the place, and um, he's really a uh, an incredible guy. You know, there was this show. I never saw it, but uh, there have been women that I've dated over the years that really enjoyed this show called Mrs. Eastwood and Company, which was a reality TV show that aired on E! And the show chronicled the lives of Dina Eastwood, who at the time was the wife of Clint Eastwood, and their daughters. And um, it, it he makes uh, apparently some cameos on the show. The show was popular, but uh, I guess I guess they got divorced. I don't know the details. But uh, he's really a a fascinating fascinating man. All right, we're going to talk with AC Mike in just a minute. But let me say hello first to Marianne in Indiana. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Frank. Uh, my favorite Clint Eastwood is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, I, I look. I love that picture, but I think it's and it's a great story, and I love that clip that we just played. But I think that um, it's a little, it's a little campy. I mean, even just the way, uh, just the way the actor's lips don't always line up with what they're saying because the movie's dubbed. It like a lot of the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. It sort of takes you out of the film a little bit, but a, a film like like Absolute Power or a film like um, uh, In the Line of Fire or a film like uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, there's not a there's nothing wrong with it. These are, are perfect films and there's nothing that takes you out of the film. You're you're totally 100 percent engrossed. Don't get me wrong. As I said, I love that Spaghetti Western uh, trilogy, uh, Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More and Good, the Bad and the Ugly. They're great. I mean, the music alone is worth um, the price of admission. But to me, the magic of Clint Eastwood as a director is that he transports you to another place and another time and stimulates, I don't know, three of your five senses all at the same time. And, I mean, uh, it's really, he's one of a kind. Someone else who is sui generis, 
is the one and only A.C. Mike Lopez. He will give us the lowdown on everything that's happening in Atlantic City. You know, there are certain people who have become associated as ambassadors of certain communities. The great Joe Franklin was kind of um, New York City's ambassador to the world. My colleague Joe Piscopo was sort of New Jersey's ambassador to the world. Uh, I guess you could say the same thing of Ed Koch when he was alive in New York City. The person that I've come to view as the human embodiment of Atlantic City is A.C. Mike Lopez. No doubt about it. And uh, you'll hear why straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. the most interesting 48 blocks in America and uh, it's very very it's very much an honor for me that we get to air this segment now on um, a great Atlantic City talk station, WOND. And I enjoy listening to WOND because I like to keep up with news about Atlantic City. But uh, WOND has not just gotten better because of our show, but my favorite show on the weekend, the Sunday show that was a staple of my week every Sunday morning, uh, has now been moved to weekdays, Monday through Friday. And sure enough, it, it has made... The station much richer because every weekday on Talk Radio 1400 WOND, you now get to hear Atlantic City broadcaster, radio and TV talk show host, and longtime Atlantic City advocate, A.C. Mike Lopez. Uh, Mike, I have thanked you privately, but let me again thank you publicly for your role in advocating for getting us added to the WOND lineup. It's good to talk with you, my friend. Hey, Frankie, good morning. Thank you so much. And uh, we couldn't be more prouder down here in uh, South Jersey and Atlantic City, uh, Cape May area as well. Uh, in Ocean County, where some of our uh, listeners uh, also tune in to have you 
uh, part of the team now down here. And I appreciate that beautiful and uh, kind uh, introduction. Uh, well, it has the added virtue of being true. The fact of the matter is, you know this, whenever I want to know something about Atlantic City history, whether it's political, whether it's food-based, whether it's a development project, uh, you're the guy that I always turn to. If I'm thinking of getting a haircut someplace or uh, having lunch someplace, I say, Mike, I need an AC Mike-approved uh, Mexican restaurant or I need an AC Mike-approved barber shop, And you always come through, as you do with everybody that watches you on Facebook and they can search. Um, live work play ac or ac mike on facebook and you post just great videos on there mike for people that are hearing us converse for the first time and they may not know a lot about your background i think i've described where you are now you're active in everything you're a community activist you're on the uh the uh, the alcohol beverage uh commission uh you are you're active in every charity every civic group you've been active in politics previously you've even run for office yourself you're hosting kind of the go-to both radio and tv talk show in the atlantic city area but how did this all come to be? I know that you were a corrections officer for a long time and retired from corrections. Uh, tell me how you made this transition from being a corrections officer to being sort of the hatted public face of Atlantic City. Well, yeah, you know, interesting you ask, because sometimes I sit at the uh, studio in uh, beautiful Linwood, New Jersey, doing the show, and I wonder, how the hell did I get here? What am I doing? <laughs> So, so yeah, 25 years, Frankie. I grew up in a family of eight, uh, mom and pop, Philadelphia to South Jersey, Atlantic County, and uh, spent 25 years of my life uh, from 19 years old, left school, partial wrestling scholarship, was a wrestler, football player, organized for time as a kid, and I went to jail for 25 years. And, man, when it was over, that 25, I ran out of prison, ran out of there, and uh, headed to uh, – Atlantic City full-time, and just fell in love with the – always was in love with the place, uh, Frankie. You know, whether it was the casinos or the history of the past, uh, the past uh, that we talk about uh, so often with some of the others, Nelson Johnson, Boardwalk Empire uh, author, and uh, turned into the HBO search, became friends of mine, Mickey Gold-Levy, uh, Don Guardian. I could go on, Frank, Hun- uh, Frank Hunter from uh, the AC Inlet, uh, you know, Chicken Bone Beach uh, with some of the – uh, interesting names and things that happened in Lake City. It just drew me in. And I had a, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. I had a nephew uh, sitting at Thanksgiving 1, uh, 2010 or 11, and he says, Uncle Mike, you got to take your phone out and start posting some of these things and events and uh, happenings that go on in Atlantic City and where you eat. And, and I'm like, come on, Frankie, I don't want to do that. You know, it's, it's personal. There's one day I put a contraption on a bike and in my truck and, and just took a ride on the beach and the boardwalk and started sharing those sunrises, those great shows, those uh, Vietnamese and Mexican and Italian and uh, Afghan restaurants, some of these meals that I was having. And it wasn't about me, right? It was about the uh, the event, whether big or small, uh, the, the history of Atlantic City. You know, boardwalk hall with the Atlantic City experience. You can walk right in to uh, uh, historic boardwalk hall, 1927, and see this fantastic uh, display of piss history. And I just fell in love like that, and people started following. And uh, before you knew it, you have a few thousand. You're a micro-influencer, so they call I didn't know what it was called at the time. And uh, people were expecting to uh, 
see this type of stuff on Instagram and Facebook. And I'll tell you exactly what happened. It was about 2014, Frankie. Uh, I'm on the uh, uh, phone, and I'm looking, and some guy asked me on the phone, uh, on, you know, a Facebook post, AC Mike, where can I find a steak? Don't want to go into a, a hotel or one of the restaurants, one of our fine restaurants and the casinos, something in the city or whatnot. And I turned to the person I'm with, and I'm like, is this guy playing with me? What, what does he call me, air-conditioned Mike or whatever? <laughs> and, and he looks at me, and he says, no, you know what, you know, whole. He says, embrace it. This is what you do. And so right there, man, it was just like, let me embrace this. And then went to work for uh, Don Guardian, uh, did some work with him. And uh, before you know it, you got mayors. And Senator Chris Brown was a legislative assistant. Uh, with him for some time in Trenton, going back and forth during North Jersey, no North Jersey casinos, the state buyout, uh, you know, the whole gamut of things that were happening. There was a lot of Atlantic City fatigue, uh, so to speak, oh, yeah. with the senators. Yes. So that's how it started. man. Yeah, I, I, well, you're doing great. And again, we're talking with AC Mike Lopez. They could search you on Facebook at AC yep. Mike or Live Work Play AC. And you feel like you're in Atlantic City on a daily basis with you. Hey, uh, Mike, you so you're on every day now, not just on Sundays. By the yep. way, um, apparently you have now your Sunday show, that old 11 a.m. time slot has now been replaced by our boss, the great John Katsimatidis. That's not yes. too bad, Mike to be replaced by John Katsimatidis. Uh, no. Now, listen, Frankie, I'm going to be honest with you. I was doing a break yesterday, and I'm like, you know, I listen to some of the commercials, what's going on. I I find it interesting myself, the ads, and and uh, I heard it. I was like, well, I had to write it down, and I said, I was going to talk to Frankie about this. One, I'd love to have the guy on as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, he's probably yeah. listening right now. He, he's got a lot to add on uh, a lot of different things. He's got some good stories about how he used to fly his plane uh, to Atlantic City and then pay for the fuel with his blackjack winnings at the at the casino table. It's a, it's a, it's, he's a, a fascinating guy. I've been trying to get him back there uh, to Atlantic City to do something, maybe uh, get him honored, maybe at Harry Hurley's event or something. But I think it would be... Um, I think uh, he'd be a great guest uh, for you. How are you enjoying doing a show every day, though, Mike? It's certainly different than doing just an hour a week. No. So so the most that I had ever done was, was, was a few hours a week. I went for uh, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then back to, to the week, the, the Sunday show, Frankie. And in saying that, I admire what you do, what Joe does, guys like Harry and, 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 and Pinky back in the day, Kravitz, and uh, Don Williams today. Because it's not easy, right? I'm not complaining. It's not like working in the uh, in, in the, in the right. Right. right? But but it's not an easy feat, you know. Whether it's guest or or talking subject or caller, so but I enjoy it because what we're doing, whether it's uh, the other side of midnight or, or or one of the segments where I'm having some fun with some of the guests uh, uh, calling in. It's getting that information out. So, and you know, it's forty-eight blocks. We get twenty-five to thirty million a year to come into AC, whether it's a day tripper or a um, or a couple days, and then our you know our residents around. So, so it's great because you're out there providing a service, also some fun as well. And so I, I love it. But it, it's getting guests is, is is fun, and sometimes sees, and I love it though sometimes because I'm like stressing. Sure. About, you know, I got to get this. But so, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Uh, again, 
Now let me let me uh, let me go through a lightning round of a couple of uh, a, a couple of quick items in Atlantic City okay. that you can kind of give us your take on and bring us up to date on. Now, it, it numbers wise, it was a, a challenging first quarter um, in yeah. 2023 for the Atlantic City casinos, and the casinos have not been able to fully rebound from where things were pre-pandemic. Only four of the Atlantic City casinos reached a higher profit for 2022 versus 2019. Um, What do you think the future holds for Atlantic City casinos? I mean, it's no secret that there's going to be three new casinos in the New York area. I don't imagine that's going to help. But um, the Atlantic City casinos are struggling to bounce back with a 4.6% drop in profits uh, last year. And this year seems to be more of the same. What do you see as the future? Give us the straight dope, Mike. You know, it's uh, interesting, again, that you say that. I had David Danzis uh, on yesterday, and uh, we were talking just of what you asked. Uh, He he writes for PlayNJ. Sure, he'd been a guest, Uh, um, and we honored him at New Year's Eve Eve, the one that you skipped. That's uh, right. right. That's right. We're still waiting for that soda, by the way. It's in the back of my truck right now. I'm sitting here, but you know what? It's uh, it's uh, it's it's real. It's happening. I mean, we know in uh, 2000, I believe 13 to 15, 16, we had five casinos close, and then we rebounded with Ocean Casino reopening and uh, Hard Rock, uh, former Trump Taj Mahal, and it, it's real. It's happening. You know. So what 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 the casinos are seeing now. Is is something that 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 has affected uh, was coming uh, to a, to to a head here. You know whether it's post COVID, mm-hmm. and folks still listen. They come out, Frankie. They're coming out, but it's still starting to uh, creep its way up. You know, to people feeling free. I mean, I, I even hate talking about it to be honest with you. But it, it's the fact that a matter. You know, with the smart devices now in our hands and at our homes and our pads. People are not coming right. so much to the brick and mortar, and uh, with with uh, online uh, sports betting and and that sort of thing, we have to remember that a lot of these, well, whether it's uh, DraftKings or you know, I don't want to keep on mentioning a bunch of names there, but they're partners. Oh yeah, they're taking the majority of that money, so they have to diversify. Whether it's entertainment, uh, whether it's the, the fine uh, fine uh, establishments for dining, and. Uh, Hopefully these people come back in, in full swing. Now, I believe this summer is going to be a tremendous summer, not only for the casinos, but for the area as a whole. Well, what's happening uh, this summer that uh, that you're excited about, that people should make a point of visiting to check out? And um, give us the lowdown. What's new this summer? What's exciting this summer? Well, see, uh, first of all, I'm going to give you with the air show. You know, the air show every August is, is a wonderful uh over 400,000 folks come on out here for a day or two and experience that. Uh, you can check that out on the Atlantic City Chambers website. Uh, it, it's just it's phenomenal. You have the uh, Bamboozle Festival coming up. It's a music concert on the beach, a festival on the beach. And then also Tidal Wave is uh, several uh, days of uh, country music and whatnot, uh, maybe forty to 45,000 each day on a three-day festival on the beach so those are some uh events that are that bring large amounts of folks in besides what's going to be happening in each and every casino frankie one of the things i wanted to share with you and it's maybe it's a little bit off beat uh from what the normal atlantic city experiences but fishing Mm. listen 
Although, although there you know are plenty of uh, honey to do list to go on this weekend and in the coming uh, weeks into May and June, this is one of the most uh, fished areas of the Atlantic City Inlet. By uh, so folks will know uh, by Ocean Casino. Go around that corner there, and it's the most beautiful boardwalk and jetties. But the striped bass are hammering the lures. Uh, nearly ripping, uh, and I kid you not, nearly ripping uh, the rods out of some of the hands. And it's some of southern New Jersey's uh, uh, best renowned fishing is right here in Atlantic City, whether it's the jetties or some of the piers, or you're familiar with Vetner, New Jersey, their fishing pier right next door, which was Atlantic City at one time. And it's just amazing. I mean, I get to see that as well when I get up for my sunrises. So, I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to tell folks. Then we got Chicago. At Hard Rock, this that's this weekend, the Atlantic City Ballet at Caesars, my big uh, gay Italian midlife crisis, uh, Ocean Casino, and uh, Margaret Chow is going to be at the Music Box. And I know this will be something that, that interests you, uh, and I'm going to hook you up with this guy, uh, Dan Tracy, an attorney with Macquarie Goldberg and Mintz, and a fine young man, a lifeguard, a long-living uh, uh, his family in Atlantic City and lifeguards and lots of rich history. It's called the 200 Club, Frankie. It's a big uh, uh, brunch at Tropicana this Sunday. And what they do is they honor the men and women who have passed in our area, not just uh, Atlantic City, Cape May and, and uh, Atlantic County as well, uh, law enforcement officers. And the, how it came to be in 1950 where uh, a gentleman, uh, a police officer, was uh, killed on duty and they formed this 200 club to assist in the rebounding of a family. And, oh, gosh, a couple hundred people attend. Uh, Steve Callender was a spearheader. He was the uh, president at Tropicana at one time. He has retired. And Dan Tracy and what they do. And it's it's a wonderful brunch uh, celebrating, you know, the life and time. So there's a few that's things cool. happening that's, there. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. outstanding. Hey, uh, Mike, almost out of time, so I want to run through a couple of uh, lightning round questions. Uh, sure. Give me give me 30 seconds on each of these. M- uh, Mama Angeloni's, two. It's uh-huh. closing after 45 years. My next trip is uh, to Atlantic City is going to be next weekend. Uh, I'm hoping to check. I'm, I have dinner plans, but I'm hoping to at least stop in there for a drink. Give me your take on Mama Angeloni's, two. What makes it such a cool spot? Why has it lasted 45 years? Listen, it's so, the, the food, first of all, food and drink and the conversation that happens in there. It's an old school Italian joint uh, that was visited by some of the wise guys back in the day. You know, it has a lot of rich history and a lot of those folks still walk in there. But the food was amazing. The meatballs and uh, Alan Angeloni, fantastic guy, a staple in Atlantic City. We're going to miss him uh, tremendously. So, you know, he, he, it's time has come and wants to sit into retirement and uh, hopefully it opens back up as uh, an Italian restaurant, keep the recipes and whatnot, but uh, a staple of Atlantic City, not just for us, as you as well, as you know. So uh, No, no doubt come. about it. Hey, the water park at the showboat, is is Ooh. it going to open and uh, what's it looking like? So it's looking fantastic. Folks can follow me on Mike Lopez. I'm going to walk through probably today with a hard hat on. Frankie, the slides are in. Uh, there's going to be over uh, 10 bars and uh, food and retail and lots of uh, uh, choices in there. Uh, what they're doing at Showboat is amazing. Uh, with the Lucky Snake Arcade, but the water park looks 
fantastic. I know a lot of folks were doubting that project, but you can't help oh, yeah. but notice it when you're driving down Pacific and New Jersey Avenue. Politics. It seems like every other mayor ends up going to prison or getting indicted. Why? Why is it? Uh, what is it about Atlantic City politics that uh, is it's so rife with corruption? What's going on? Well, you know what? Lots of lot. Even though we're on, like you said, a little downturn a few minutes ago with the with the money, so many uh, you know interesting projects come and you know you slide, you grease me a little bit and get this approved and get it on front of here, in front of that board or that board. It just becomes one of those things. There's an interesting uh, uh, a piece that I did with uh, Nelson Johnson, who's the author of Boardwalk Empire. And that's on uh, your YouTube channel. People should search AC Mike on YouTube, and it comes out. It's a great interview. I learned a lot from it. And then yeah. lastly, Mike, uh, let me first publicly congratulate you on being engaged and fooling a woman that is way out of your league into uh, marrying you. Are you going to get married in Atlantic City? You have a date. You have a location. So the date is not nailed down yet, though, but absolutely. So whether it's uh, the beautiful steel pier at the obs- under the observation wheel overlooking the uh, down beach portion of the beach or somewhere maybe even around water parks. My fiance, beautiful lady, intelligent, bright. She loves the, uh, the activity of Atlantic City. She's an Ocean City girl, right, and beautiful Ocean City uh, family, but she has fallen in love with Atlantic City seeing it in our eyes, and yours included. Outstanding. All right, man. Uh, It's great to talk with you as always. I'll see you on the 48 in a couple of weeks, okay? You got it, Frankie. One more thing real quick to tell folks. Uh, Tap tap your uh, smartphones or your devices. Go to Travel Begins at 40, and you'll see a great article why Atlantic City is beautiful, experiencing beautiful, something of a renaissance. Beautiful. So. Well, great. We'll talk soon. Travel begins at 40. AC Mike, search him on Facebook, AC Mike NJ, or Live Work Play AC. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Believe it or not, this song by the Gorillas is actually called Clint Eastwood. And as best I understand it, Clint Eastwood has nothing to do with the song at all. And it's really, or the video, and it's really not clear why it's called Clint Eastwood. I'll tell you why it's called Clint Eastwood. Tell me. Because they use sounds from the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then fistful. That's there's like the, the writers they thought it sort of sounded like that. Okay. So that's the reason they said, "Oh, that's kind of cool. It's called Clint Eastwood." Yeah, that's I think, the reason. I think it's more about kind of benefiting from the the buzz of Clint Eastwood and having an odd title. But who knows? It doesn't sound like the good, the bad, and the ugly theme. The good, the bad, and the ugly theme is more. I think they use the little scent. Little samples of it, like here and there. No, uh, it's it's a great song. Don't get me wrong. I I certainly enjoy it. All right, the good news is uh, we've got a lot of show to get to. Uh, Laura Curran is here. We're going to chat with her next hour. If you want to email me about anything we covered this hour uh, that we didn't have time to chat about, 
you can at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Let me say hello to the original Rick in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, don't let me interrupt you, uh, Rick. It sounds like you're in the middle of something. Uh, you... Well, Frank, I've been hanging on so long. Okay, there. all right. What can I do for you, Rick? Go ahead. Okay, well, about uh, Clint Eastwood. Did you mention uh, Play Misty for me? Yes, that was the first film he ever directed. Oh, okay. I, I didn't hear you say that because I was going to say that has a lot of similarities with you, it, you know, <laughs> being, the, being the night guy, you know, and all that stuff. That's true. That's true. Also, um, uh, High Plains Drifter. That High Plains Drifter, paint- another great film. Right. That town they painted red. My friend used to own that town. You're kidding. No, they uh, used his land to build it. And part of the contract was they had to leave it intact when they when they left. That's wild, Rick. I did not know that. All right. A lot more to get to. Uh, you can email me if you want to continue the conversation. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Occasionally, you know, on Fridays, tomorrow we'll do this. Occasionally, I'll get uh, questions on Ask Frank Anything or even in my private life about, hey, why aren't there more women on talk radio? And in terms of the women that are on the radio, who do you think does the best job? And I will tell you, and I've said this publicly, uh, there are recordings of this, you can check this out, that I think someone that uh, not only has one of the best voices of every woman that's on the radio these days, but one of the most pleasant demeanors of everyone of any gender, and I've lost track of how many genders we're up to these days, um, has got to be Laura Curran. Laura Curran is uh, not only the former county executive in Nassau County, a former reporter in her own right, but now she is killing it as a podcast host and as the host of Cut to the Chase Sunday afternoons on WABC. And I really enjoy her show and really look forward to it because, one, it's very substantive. There are substantive guests. There are substantive issues discussed. But there's no yelling. And nobody's yelling at one another. People disagree. They disagree. There's no uh, threatening to burn one another's house down. It's a pleasant conversation uh, that leaves people, I think, a little bit better informed and feeling a little bit better about sort of the polarized nature of where we are as a country these days. And I am just thrilled that Laura Curran has agreed to sit in with me this hour. Laura, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for letting me crash the last hour of your show. Oh, I please, appreciate you're it. You're welcome to come in uh, anytime. Anytime <laughs> it's fun you have to be an open up at invitation. this hour. It's a whole new world. It certainly is. How is it uh how did how is the difference in traffic from oh. when you drive here on during daylight hours versus the middle so, of the night? So, coming in from Long Island, uh flu. There was just nobody nobody on the road. Uh, half an hour. What would normally take an hour or an hour and a half? You know, a half hour. Great. Well, it, it is uh, great. Now, 
I did get a little nervous when we were exchanging emails, and I said this to our colleague Dominic Carter last night because I am about eight hours behind my emails until 6 a.m. That's yeah. when I'm caught up. And I saw that I responded to an email about 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and you said, all right, I'll see you at 5 a.m. Yeah. And I <laughs> said, oh, boy, the show's going to be over at 5. But luckily, you made it here. I did. That was, that was a typo. Okay. I made a mistake Whew, with my numbers. No. Yeah. That would have been bad. Um, the, a lot of folks are hearing you for the first time, certainly the first time that you've uh, come on our show, and they may not know much about your, uh, your pedigree. Uh, I know that you were the former Nassau County executive. Some people may not realize that you're actually not eligible to be president of the United States because you were not born in the United States. That's right. I was born in Canada. How does a uh, Canadian-born person come to be Laura Curran, Nassau County executive, talk show hostess, etc.? That's a funny, that's actually a very good question. So I moved around a lot as a kid. I had an itinerant childhood my parents moved around a lot. So by the time I was in ninth grade, I was in eight different schools. Wow. Yeah. What, was your dad in the military? No, you'd think. It would be retail. Uh, but they were adventuresome, so he would get jobs in different places. I spent some time in Belgium, Florida, L.A., so Long He wasn't Island. on the run from the law. He was anything. not on the run from the law, I'm happy to say. Um, and we all had green cards. Uh, I actually, I became a citizen of this country. Uh, it sounds corny to say, and I don't talk about it much because it sounds kind of hokey. But after 9-11, I was married to an American. I had a baby. Um, and after 9-11, I said, you know, I got to be a part of this country. I belong here. I pay taxes. And, and uh, you know, I, I felt a call uh, to really become a, a true American after that that horrible that horrible day. That's great. And uh, I'm certainly glad that you did. And that's one of the things that I've always found puzzling about your fellow Canadian, William Shatner, is that he's been Phil. living here. Exactly. <laughs> Phil, for, um, you know, since the 60s or the 50s, actually, and still never took the plunge to become an American citizen. Next time he's on the show, I'm going to I'm going to ask him. Uh, I'm going to ask him why. You were a reporter for the New York Daily News, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You served then in the Nassau County Legislature and on the school board. Yeah. Uh, tell me about making that transition from journalist to someone that's politically active or at least active in the community. Yeah. So I was at the Daily News for many years. I was at the Post for a short period, then back at the Daily News, and um, I was actually home with my kids. I had three kids at this point, uh, and a friend of mine dared me to run for school board. She said, you covered education for the Daily News. Why don't you run for school board? So I did, thinking I wouldn't win because there was an incumbent and the incumbent normally wins. Uh, but I, I ran and I ended up doing well. And I got the bug. I really loved it. I love dealing with the budget. I love dealing with the issues, the constituents, making the hard decisions that were the right decisions. You know, uh, really wet my appetite to do more. And then the local legislator where I lived retired, which doesn't happen very often mm-hmm. because we have, don't have term limits. And um, I threw my hat in the ring for that and uh, did four years. So that's two terms. And then a lot of crazy stuff going on in county government that I got to see, had a front row seat for. And uh, I that's when I decided to to throw my hat in the ring for, for the county executive job. How did you enjoy your time as county executive? I loved it. I really did. It was really – it's hard. $3.3 billion budget, 7,500 employees. Uh, there had been fiscal problems forever. Uh, corruption issues, a lot to take on, but it was really satisfying work. I had a fantastic team who I am still friends with so many of my, my, my team people. 
Um, and we had COVID. We had the George Floyd protests. I mean, we had a lot going on in those four years. But I, I think we did a pretty good job. You then, you're now doing a talk show. You started doing this podcast yeah. and uh, very popular, one of the most popular on the Red Apple Podcast Network. If people want to um, listen to it and they haven't heard it, they can go to Red Apple Podcast Network and just search your last name, Curran, and it comes uh, right up. Uh, tell me about the transition from the world of politics, yeah. where you're not only in the position of having to run things, but having to take positions on on everything, including things that you might not have anything right. to do with your job. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You ended up in a position where a lot of folks said you were a victim of the bail reform law. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the person that happened to be running for D.A. on the Democratic ticket the same year you were in. Tell me about the transition from the world of politics back to the world of of media. So I did a lot of radio during COVID. I did had regular interviews with all the different stations. I did TV. I did this. I did that. But I really love radio. I love listening to radio. I loved, you know, Dr. Demento as a kid. There's something <laughs> about radio that is just so absorbing and intimate. And I really wanted to get into that after being county exec. And I'm really grateful to John Katsimatidis and Chad Lopez and the team here at WABC for, for you know, taking a chance on me and giving me the podcast. Uh, started in June. Super fun. I talked to everyone uh, from Melissa DeRosa, Kellyanne Conway, and everyone in between. And, you know, it's not just politics. I do oh, yeah. other current events, whatever. Whatever I, whatever I find is interesting, I hope other people find interesting as well. And then that kind of morphed into the uh, radio show a little more recently. And again, I'm really grateful to John Katsimatidis, to Margot, to the team uh, for the support that I've gotten and for the opportunity to do this, because this is really a dream come true for uh, me. Sa- uh, same here. Every word that you that you just said, uh, I could say and underscore uh, seven times over. It's a little different doing a live radio show yeah. when you have to hit certain breaks yeah. as opposed to just doing a podcast right. when you're recording. And if you make a mistake, you can edit it out. If the guest says something weird and asks you to take it out, you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily as much priority on uh, it being done at a certain amount of time. How have you found that transition from doing the podcast to doing a live radio show of your own? It's a bigger transition than people would think. People totally like different art form. People totally. like you, Frank. People like Sid Rosenberg. Uh, make it look easy. It's not easy. And one thing I have to keep reminding myself is I got to keep I got to remind people what they're listening to, who mm-hmm. I'm talking to, who I am. You know, uh, the other thing is you can't like you said, you can't take it back. If you've said it, it's out there. And so there's no editing it. One of the things that I've enjoyed about you since you, of your time in office, um, aside from your work on the radio, is you've been very public about cautioning the Democratic Party, and if people just tuning in, talk with Laura Curran, <laughs> former Nassau County executive and the host of uh, Cuts of the Chase on 77 WABC in New York. But you've been very publicly critical at times of the Democratic Party, especially in New York State, but even nationally, for going too far to the left mm-hmm. on various issues, particularly as it relates to crime. If you were to give some advice to the Democratic Party these days, nationally, statewide, what would you tell them? I would say don't spend so much time on Twitter. I would say go and talk to actual people as much as you can. Find out what they're concerned about, what they're interested in, what they want, what they expect from you. Uh, I always say the people are at the top of the org chart and they're not stupid. And the concerns about crime, the concerns about education, the concerns about taxes are really real. 
And uh, I feel like it's almost like the cool kids have taken over. These progressive, quote-unquote, cool kids have taken over in Albany. And the more moderate Democrats are afraid of them, are intimidated intimidated by them and kind of want to get their approval. Like we're back in high school again. And you got to remember – you're not representing those other elected officials. You're representing the people in your district. Uh, now, the Republicans are also having some problems, right? Uh, we've seen w- they haven't won the popular vote in a presidential election since uh, 2004. They've won a total since 1988. They've won the popular vote once. Uh, we've seen what happened in 2018 with them losing Congress. We saw what happened with them losing the presidency in 2020. We saw what was supposed to be a big red wave around the country yeah. in 2022 never materialized. Didn't get past Long Island, and, right? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, it looks like come next year in a U.S. Senate map that's very favorable for the Republicans. They are doing whatever they can to screw themselves over again by being poised to nominate some of the most extreme candidates that cost them the Senate last year. Let's say you're putting your hat on as a Republican consultant. Mm. What advice do you give the GOP these days? It would be very much the same. Mm. Don't worry about the loudest, angriest, extremist voices because they don't speak for most of the people in your state, in your district, in your town, whatever it may be. Talk talk to real people about what it is they're concerned about, what they want from you. And you really can't go wrong if you do that. And then and also don't don't worry so much about your own career. I know it sounds horrible, but people can sniff out when you're a hack and when you're the real deal. So just be yourself. And work hard and remember, they're your boss. The people are your boss. I saw an interesting chart in Axios yesterday because um, I, you know, I think a lot of us growing up, we always picture Republicans are supposed to be the party of rich people, right? They're the party that uh, fights for tax cuts and uh, that's the party of country clubs. Yeah. That's the party of the elite and right. the wealthy. And we always think of Democrats as the party, at least that's the stated narrative, that's supposed to be fighting for uh, the working class, blue-collar mm-hmm. union workers. Mm-hmm. I saw an interesting chart yesterday in Axios Nine of the top 10 wealthiest congressional districts are represented by Democrats, whereas Republicans now represent almost all of the poorest half of the country. So over the last several decades, there's been and I'm going to show you this chart with red and blue. There has been a total dramatic political realignment where almost every wealthy district is represented by Democrats, and almost every poor district wow. is represented by a Republican. What? And if you can see this chart, it's really stark. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to post this yeah. on uh, my Facebook page at facebook.com slash MoranoFans so, uh, so people can see it. But what do you attribute the partisan realignment that we've seen over the last 20 years to? You know, there's been a lot written and a lot said about how that has shifted and how the Democrats are seen more as the party of the elites, Mm -hmm. the college educated. Uh, And they're the ones who are now in charge of so much in this country. Um, And one thing that's really interesting is I remember in the past few elections, the the union and I'm talking about the building trades, the leadership would support the Democrat Mm. 
whereas the members would go for, say, Donald Trump instead of Hillary Clinton. And I think it's and I think Donald Trump kind of exemplifies this attitude. It's this this sort of middle finger to the elites, to people who are telling you what to think, how to live your lives, what your kids should be learning. And people really do bristle against that because there's a condescending attitude there. Like you don't you know what? You unwashed people, you don't really know what you need. Right. You know, and that, that phrase, like people who vote against their own interests, I find very condescending. Like, well, who are you to tell me right. what my interests are? Precisely. You know my you don't even know me, but you know my interests better than me. That's the attitude that people see the Democrats have now. You know, I've um, I've always been a political independent. I've been very involved in the third party and, and political independent movement my whole life. And one of the things that's always really annoyed me, but more so in recent years about Democrats, particularly the Democratic leadership, is exactly the attitude that you just described. This attitude that we know better than you. You can't be trusted to make any sort of decisions. But one of the things that I've found really irksome about uh, Republicans over the years, particularly of late, is there's almost this hostility to being intellectual. There's almost, whether you're talking science, whether you're talking medicine, you ask someone uh, to look at a a chart or look at data, and there's a disbelief of the data. People shrug, and you say, oh, that's what they want you to believe. My question for you is, do you think Republicans need to be a little more elite and Democrats need to be a little bit more populist? I I like the pop more populist Democratic Party, the party of the people, the party of the underdog, the union guy, the new immigrant, you know, someone who's looking out for their interests. I, I that's my party. I feel like that's my Democratic Party. Um uh, but what was your question? Well, is the Democratic Party still that, do you think? Do they um I, I think they're I think it's slipping away. I really do. I think it's slipping away and they're kind of trying to grasp at it and then they're confused. When they see the Asian vote slipping away, when they see the Hispanic vote becoming more Republican, and they're like, wait, wait a minute. These are supposed to be our people, but that's becoming less and less the case. After last year uh, out on Long Island, there's now a whole bunch of Republican members of Congress, and uh, these are seats that were uh, at least half of which were Democrats. Right. all pretty red now, Nassau Yeah, the two in Nassau, yeah. And uh, one of those, I noticed, is the congressional district in which you live in. And we've seen that uh, nationally and statewide, there's going to be a big fundraising push to turn at least a couple of these seats from red to blue. And now that they're they're challenging the district lines again, Mm -hmm. and now that there's likely to be a court of appeals that's much more favorable to this, is there any chance you'd think about running for Congress next year? You're first on a lot of people's lists, I'm well, sure. Well, that's actually very flattering to hear. Um, I I think I'm having too much fun doing what I'm doing now. Um, I have more time for my family. And it's uh, as much as I loved being engaged and being in government. And I love, I love campaigning. I love all of it, the politics and the government. I think while... It's flattering to be considered. Uh, there is a lot. Uh, there'll be, and these two races, the, the Santos race, uh, and then the other one down where I live. There's going to be a lot, as you say, a lot of money thrown. These are going to be the top, you know, among the probably the top six in the country. So whoever runs is going to get a lot of support, a lot of help. Right. Well, that's why yeah. a lot of prospective candidates would kill for that level of yeah. support. 
Um, I, 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 I'm a firm believer is you have to have a fire in the belly to run. You can't just run because you think it's going to be cool or it would be fun to have the congressional pin. You have to have a mission and the fire in the belly and a real rationale. And I have to tell you right now, Frank, I'm having too much fun doing what I'm doing <laughs> That's now great. With, I with love you it. Well, we're the this. beneficiary of this, right? <laughs> uh, if um, the Democrats could use more people like you, I think so could talk radio, right? I mean, talk radio has been, uh, before uh, John Katsimatidis did what he did with this station, uh, so dominated by one political voice, and more so than one political voice, one sort of tone yeah. uh, that so often sounds angry, yeah. hateful. And it's one of the things I really enjoy about your show is it's such a, a respite uh, from that kind of thing. Let me ask you a little bit about um, what I began our conversation with. Uh, you're born in Canada. Mm. You cannot be president, I right? can't. Or Ar- vice president. Arnold Schwarzenegger has talked about this for a long time, yeah. including very recently. He said that if he was eligible, he would have run for president. Yeah. And he says oh, the, all these immigrants to our country, people yeah. like uh, Henry Kissinger and uh, you know Madeleine Albright, uh, John Katsimatidis, they've all uh, contributed in really significant ways. They should be given the opportunity to run. Would you be in favor, not for yourself, but prospectively, changing that provision that only American-born citizens can run for president? I do think it's time to change that. Uh, That list that you mentioned, uh, why not? It's the only two jobs that people who don't live in this country can't get. And I don't know if that's that's right. I I don't either. So you'd be for changing it? Yeah. I yeah. would. I, I tend to agree. As long as you're a citizen. Right. Well, and you meet all the other you meet requirements, all the other, right? right? Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, speaking of him, there Maybe was... Maybe I could be a ticket with him. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> that, would be, that would be interesting. So apparently uh, Schwarzenegger was... Um, fed up with this pothole that uh, that is in his um, area, and he complained about it, and it didn't get fixed for two weeks. So he decided he was going to patch this up himself, and so he posted this video to Twitter. And I'm going to retweet it at uh, Frank Morano of him filling that what he said was a pothole, but apparently. He ends up filling a service trench, which I'm not even sure exactly what a service don't trench tell me is. There were people inside. Uh, I don't think <laughs> so. But he fills this service trench that he claimed was a recalcitrant pothole. Oh, Lord. Um, in your time as a private citizen, because Schwarzenegger is a private citizen yeah. now, have you found yourself going out uh, filling any potholes? <laughs> One thing I've learned working, especially in a municipal government, There is usually a good reason for something that seems really stupid. Mm -hmm. Not always. Not always. Sometimes there's no good reason. But sometimes just check first. There you go. And maybe this kind of pothole vigilanteism is not. Is not for the best. And GPW people are usually very smart, and they know what they're doing. <laughs> okay. Maybe their bosses aren't, but they are. Uh, you know, I talked about talk radio and sort of the one political viewpoint that's dominated a lot of talk radio. Yeah. We see on cable news, you know, everyone used to make fun of that crossfire format of one Republican, I one Democrat. I So did I. I mean, Pat Buchanan and, I love and John Bill McLaughlin. Press. Right. Well, that was really, really interesting. <laughs> but you had a whole bunch of shows that yeah. all basically followed that same format. Yeah. And then Jon Stewart went on Crossfire about 19 years ago and made fun of them. And basically CNN said, all right, you're right. We're going to end Is this. Is that what happened? Pretty much. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. But now, now it's gotten 
so much worse because essentially whatever cable news outlet you go to, with the exception of maybe Michael Smirconish's show on CNN, you basically have a host that gives a commentary on something. Yeah. And then he brings on a chorus of guests that agree with right. him. Right, right. I'm wondering what role you think the media has played oh, huge, in huge. our current polarization huge, situation. Huge, uh, Because of money. Because of money. Advertising and they the more incendiary, the more clicks, the more views, and there you go. And it's a shame. I I really love debate. I think it's great to disagree. I think it's great to talk to people with whom you disagree. That's how you maybe challenge yourself. And I think it's good to challenge your own preconceptions. You might learn something, and maybe you'll be able to persuade someone else. You know, it's funny. Today is Christopher Hitchens' birthday. Oh, I didn't and know I, that. I did a little segment on him on my last radio show. He was a master of debate. He would take on anyone and debate anyone from Sean Hannity to Al Sharpton to everyone in between and do it with intelligence. He did his homework. Uh, he could be withering, but he never shied from a fight in, in a way that was more uh, not just yelling and screaming. I, I, yeah, I'm, uh, I miss Christopher Hitchens and his contributions in yeah. a, a number of areas of uh, public discourse. In, I heard uh, a couple of weeks ago you did a terrific interview with Marianne Williamson, who's yeah. obviously running against uh, President Biden in the Democratic Talk primary. Talk about running against the elites no, in her right. party. Oh no, no doubt. But, uh, so now you have not just Marianne Williamson running, but uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're likely to see any of the uh, any beyond, anyone beyond that in terms of the top echelon of Democratic politics char- uh, challenging Biden in the primary? Or do you think this is pretty much it? It's going to be Biden versus RFK and Marianne Williamson. I mean, Biden sure is taking his sweet time to announce. So everyone, Gavin Newsom and everyone else, they're probably just waiting in the wings, practicing their lines. Uh, I don't think we will see an establishment candidate if he's if he's going to announce or if he does announce. We'll see what happens. Anything can happen. Life is crazy. If he doesn't, if he decides not to, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, then you'll have the deluge of all the more sort of est- quote, quote unquote establishment people. Um, and it's a shame that people like Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy, who are, you know, smart, accomplished, intelligent people, we might not agree with them on everything, uh, but that they're they're sort of dissed in a, in a very, like we were talking about before, very condescending. Oh, yeah. Oh, condescending, yeah. Um, insulting way. I don't think that's right. How do you think President Biden's done? I think he has had some successes, uh, but he is not a, he is not a president who a lot of people are super excited about. I think um, you know we all know that he's a he's gaff prone, shall we put it? Uh, there's also some concern that he's not really in charge, that he's not really running the show, that he's not quite able. And I think Do that's you feel something. That way? I I I feel. That he, even before he was old, was a bit empty. Uh, I think he would sort of go with the flow of what it was you were supposed to say and what you were, what you were supposed to think. I don't feel a strong core in him as, you know, in what he actually believes and what he actually thinks. I really do see him as just a, a lifelong creature of politics. You know, when it was great to go against the thugs and the criminals, he did that. Then when, it, when you, you had to feel sorry for the thugs and the criminals, he did that. I think he just sort of goes with what he thinks he's supposed to do. Uh, I, do I don't feel that he's a very strong 
He has a very strong character. We're talking with Laura Curran, a listener every Sunday afternoon on uh, Cut to the Chase on 77 WABC. You can also go to Red Apple Podcast Network and search Curran, hear uh, her podcast. Last question, and then uh, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade. You were in office the same time as Andrew Cuomo. Right? There's all sorts of areas where the county executive's got to deal with the governor and mm-hmm. his office. Uh, you're political careers both came to an end or a pause right around the same time in very different fashions. Now uh, there's some talk of Andrew Cuomo coming back to challenge uh, Kirsten Gillibrand next year. What's your take on Cuomo in general and that that rematch or that matchup specifically? So I don't know if it's the Kirsten Gillibrand race, but I do get the sense that he is looking to get back in. He clearly loves politics. He's clearly very good at it. Um, it was interesting dealing with the governor. He was a very strong governor. Um, I had a fine relationship with him during my tenure. Um, he, he would come to Nassau County a lot. He was, he definitely got Long Island. He definitely visited, understood it. He gets our voters. Um, I'd be curious to talk to him now about how he feels about bail reform. Mm. Uh, but he has spoken openly. He has come on John Cat- with John Katzmatidis a couple times talking about how it went too far. Uh, John did confront him and say, look, but you signed it. And, I, you know, I think he, he can explain himself there. Uh, I felt during COVID I had to push back quite a bit. I tried to do it politely because I think it was becoming way too micromanagey of businesses, of schools, of everything else. And I, I, my mantra was always, we can trust these businesses and these schools to, to make the right decisions. They don't need to be micromanaged on every little thing that they're doing. So I did push back there. But, you know, I always was able to have that conversation, and I, I'm, I appreciate that. So uh, w- would you have a rooting interest one way or another if it's a Gillibrand-Cuomo uh, primary? Well, Kirsten Gillibrand, I think uh, she has a lot of money. She's got a lot of union support. She one thing that I hear from people on Long Island is we never see her. We don't we don't know where she is. Maybe, you know, I know it's hard to compete against Chuck Schumer, who's everywhere. But uh, I think people don't really have a sense of who she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to noted no specific endorsement in that race of Gillibrand versus Cuomo, at least not yet. All Let's right. talk. At, if he there enters, you go. Then, right. then we can talk. All right. We're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade in a minute. But first, we're going to see if we can't give away a thousand dollars. If you are the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. We'll give you a, ch- a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you can do that. You will be $1,000 richer. We'll play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Joined in studio for the hour by our special guest co-host, Laura Curran. Uh, We're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade in a moment, but uh, let's see first if we can't make somebody a little wealthier. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. 
answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. All right, let's say a little Lewis in New Jersey. Hello, Lewis. Hello there. Hello there, Frank. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Say hello to Laura Curran as well. Good hello. morning, Laura. Good okay. morning, Lewis. Your work. Uh, Thank that, you. It's nice. All right, you know how to play the game, right, Lewis? I'll give it. I'll give you the old college try, there, Frank. There you go. All we can ask. All right, you ready to go? I'm ready. All right. What is the official currency of the United States? Uh, the U.S. dollar. What is the name of the red liquid that carries oxygen to different parts of the body? Hemoglobin or red blood cells. Who was the mother of King Charles? Queen Elizabeth II. Who was the first U.S. president named James? James. It's not James Buchanan. Uh, James Madison? All right. Who was the first black president of South Africa? Uh, Nelson Mandela. Who holds the record for winning the most Oscars? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Cary uh, uh, Grant. Ah, I'm sorry. Walt Disney, Lewis. Walt, Walt Disney. Disney. Uh, more Oscars than anybody. Nobody's even close. Lewis, hang on. Kenneth's going to give you a consolation prize. The answer to question four is always James Madison. That's the oh. trick to playing the game. It's not as tough as oh, the question as so it may funny. seem. Um, tomorrow, same thing. Next week, we'll change it up. All right. Uh, I'm hoping to inspire the uh, a, the writer, the New York Times bestselling author, to be precise, that we're lucky enough to check in with every Thursday, to make his next book about James Madison. He's written about George Washington, written about Abraham Lincoln, written about uh, Frederick Douglass, written about Andrew Jackson, but Brian Kilmeade still no James Madison book. I did not imagine that being the first question. You know, I try to anticipate where you're going to go. I did not think you were going to start with our uh, with the former president, but uh, I I did say you know we do have the War of 1812 and the Battle of New Orleans. Guess who's president? That's true. That's true. That's fair. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Uh, Brian, obviously, there's uh, so many things in the news, but the big news uh, from last night is this uh, appellate court decision on the abortion medication. Where do you see this whole situation reverberating from here, Brian? I don't know. It's going to go work the way through the courts. Um, I think it's an unnecessary fight in Texas, taken uh, countered by Washington. And I, I see that I have not seen any reports that said the FDA said it was dangerous. And I think it's more a moral question. And politically, it is not good for Republicans. It's, you know, for pro-lifers, that's one thing. But for politics, and many people think it shouldn't get down to that, it's a disastrous issue for Republicans. I don't know if Laura agrees. Brian, yeah, I was just going to say I do agree. Most people are somewhere on the pro-choice spectrum. They might not want to talk about it, but, uh, you know, most people live in the real world and understand that, you know, life isn't always as we want it to be. So uh, I have a question for you about, you know, Tim Scott is a, ex- doing this exploratory committee. He's, he seems like he's a strong candidate. It seems to me like there, the Republicans have a pretty deep bench if Trump somehow doesn't <laughs> succeed, which I don't know. I don't know. He's looking pretty strong to me. How do, does a Republican like Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or even Ron DeSantis, who has not announced yet, how do they break through the media clutter to get their message out? It's going to be interesting because uh, 
I mean, by the time the debates come up on Fox in August, that's when everybody's message will be equal for those moments in the lead up to August. And I think, unlike last time, you have a lot of people that are running but don't really disagree that much. I mean, if you listen to Nikki Haley, 85% of what she talks about, she agrees with Trump. Tim Scott will not say anything negative about Trump. I haven't heard him say one word negative. At one point, he has to. You know, Jeb Bush was so different from Trump. Uh, Marco Rubio was different from Chris Christie. They all had different track records. They're going to separate on drama, drama and youth, drama and youth and uh, complications. Listen, the guy's got three court cases coming up. It's going to be a huge distraction. Uh, You know, he doesn't show the discipline. We appreciate working for him. We appreciate what he did, but his time has passed. That's going to have to be the message. And I don't know if it's going to be good enough. Uh, But I also don't know the unscripted nature of the indictment uh, that's probably coming in Georgia. The indictment is probably coming in Mar-a-Lago. Brian, uh, the document leak that has gotten so much attention from uh, both journalists and the public about this Russia-Ukraine war and the United States role. What about the detail? Well, no doubt about it, right? I mean, uh, we now know exactly uh, when Zelensky's going to the bathroom and and what the South Koreans are doing at any given time. And the South Koreans are certainly pretty ticked off that uh, our spying on them has been exposed. Give me your take on uh, who was the likely source of this leak, Brian, and what, if any, national security implications do you think there are? I don't know if you had a chance to see it. It's about a five-page story in the Washington Post. They interviewed somebody that was on that uh, on that website with him, and it turns out it's a guy. It turns out he has access to all these papers. Uh, it turns out he's been doing it for months. He uh, evidently is uh, likes to shoot, loves guns, uh, is an American. He still has access to this stuff. Uh, and what happened is it's happened in January and February, and then people started taking it off the site and said, I can't believe how great and accurate this intelligence is, and started taking it to places like 4chan. It ends up on Telegram, and now it's an international scandal and story. I am so disappointed in our country that we wouldn't be able to get on top of this, disappointed in our intelligence that any one person would have access to this. It turns out they have this guy talking on camera with his name obscured, with his mom had to give him permission. He was under 18 on this gaming site, Discord. And it turns out the, the leaker has U.S. documents. Um, it's got about, originally it was a, a group chat of 24 guys on there. And then he started just talking, taking the leadership role and said, let me just tell you what's really going on in these wars. Let me tell you what's really going on with intelligence. And he started putting all this stuff out, little things like the Russians had a way to hack our smart bombs, make them dumb bombs. In Egypt, we know that Egypt was going to covertly sell weapons to Russia. They talk about Russia's unrest. The depth of their unrest and fighting within their government is much greater than anyone thought, but our government evidently knew it. And uh, there's a new batch now containing about 27 pages of different spy material. Well, so this is worse than Snowden, it looks like, and continuing. But what's so amazing to me is that the U.S. didn't notice leaked documents circulating on social media. I mean, these are pretty Until glaring. last week. Right. I mean, that's, I, I, to say it's alarming, I think, is a pretty big understatement. It's unbelievable. I mean, you can't get your head around it. And where's our president? He's going on a family picnic in Ireland looking at the history of his family, which is fine. Retire if you want to do that. 
We have China warning us to stop the exercises in the Philippines. The worst document leak that is uh, what is causing distrust and anger amongst our allies. Do you know in a seven-hour trip, he didn't pick up the phone to talk to any leader to explain himself? Like Benjamin Netanyahu, it turns out, a report shows that the Mossad is actually supporting the protesters in Israel against their government. So what's going on there? I mean, that's a huge story. Do you think that a phone call to Netanyahu might be necessary? Uh, of course it is. Uh, a way to settle things down in China? He's not. We have a zombie president. He's nobody is doing the job. The vice president's talking about um, uh, would, would be racial incidents that happened in Nashville. Gun, gun violence is the issue. But what's going on there with the expulsion of two is now made to be a national story. When we have crises sparking everywhere, instead, if you want to debate guns, let's go do it. You want to talk about uh, how racist Nashville is? You're not going to sell me on it. So, Brian, you mentioned China, and I was curious to know what you think about French President Macron uh, having a wonderful visit, tea, conversation, doing a little bit of the Chinese talking points with President Xi. What do you make of that? I found it very odd. I can't read what he's doing there. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know, you, you got to see what's happening internationally. The, the blowback has been huge inside France, inside Germany. Poland came out with statements saying, listen, America's got our national security. That's who I trust. Yeah. Uh, Germany, where you say things matter. While he says, I don't want to get involved between the U.S. and Taiwan, then the intensity of the war games over Taiwan uh, right. picks, uh, gets ratcheted up. And what does and that that's mean for who Ukraine? you call? Everything. Yeah. I mean, Lord, but they're not doing enough for in Ukraine. It is their back backyard. We're working. We're spending. We're depleting. Uh, we're, they're fighting. And he's over there talking about China and brings 70 businessmen with him to, uh, to reinforce different business opportunities in France who doesn't want to work. Mm. He's the president. Our president's got to be on the phone saying, what are you doing? Yeah. You just embarrass me. You, uh, uh, this is not the way an ally acts. Instead, you have a guy in a seven-hour journey looking at his family tree. Yeah. Uh, so the, his likely opponent in the general election 2024, uh, he had a big interview on your network this weekend. Donald Trump, uh, or this week, uh, in primetime with Tucker Carlson, talked about the investigation, says he's running even if he's convicted, and uh, talked about uh, you know Biden's handling of the Afghanistan situation, a bunch of other things. What did you make of Trump's messaging in the interview with Tucker? How do you think that's going to serve him in the coming months as the primaries start to heat up, Brian? I'm, I'm mostly positive. I mean, you have him talking about the, the world stage and how President Biden has reversed almost everything he did from the Abraham Accords to what's happening uh, in the Ukraine to the way he left Afghanistan, blaming the former president. I don't even think people in his own party believe anything in these reports. So the president, I think, was able to look at what Joe Biden's doing and just say, this is what I was doing and this is what I will do. And he has more credibility than he had in 2016 because he's done it. Uh, the one comment that's getting some blowback among Republicans is saying Gavin Newsom was nice to me, so I like him. <laughs> Gavin Newsom's the worst governor in the country. Uh, he he just he's a show horse. He doesn't do anything except run the state into the ground. And there's more people leaving that state than any in the union, even though it's one of the most picturesque and opportunistic places you could ever be. But they're taxing people, 
allowing the homeless to flourish, crime to run rampant, the border to be wide open. People are just leaving. So people are giving him some blowback on that. But for the most part, his numbers continue to rise. I don't think people look at this New York case as serious, although I'm sure you guys saw the poll that showed independents do take it more serious than I thought, Hmm. which would be key. But uh, DeSantis, Pompeo, Mike Pence, they better get in soon. Because uh, this is a runaway train if you're a Republican, unless they can get in front of it. And they got to at least try. Tim Scott, no more exploratory. You don't need the exploratory. Jump in. You yeah. need to get out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that, that Trump is getting the blowback by saying that he likes somebody. <laughs> <laughs> in some quarters, yeah. And I'm not sure how he was nice to him. Because he was nice to him, right. Uh, among uh, Newsom supporters. But, but Trump is, always does that. He's always saying this guy, you know, he likes. Putin, he was. We had a meeting right. of the mind. Kim Jong Un, you know, uh, right. President yes, Xi, you and, name and, it. And, and he was saying that all these guys, you know, President Xi, Kim Jong Un, Putin, that they're smart. Now, was he saying that I, they're smart and I like them and I want to hang out with them? I, to me, it was more like, let's be careful because these guys are really right, smart right. and they're incredibly powerful. And I think that might have been misinterpreted. I don't know if he was. Well, you're 100 right, and here, yeah. here's why. I saw I saw Andrea Mitchell. Say, I can't believe this president loves uh, autocrats and he's saying how smart he is and brilliant president she is. And I mean, you could say great leaders in the past uh, who are evil are also intelligent. Right. One thing has nothing to do with the other. What what are they going to use their guile? What are they going to use their experience? Uh, Their intentions are what you'd be wary, but you should be able to judge your opponent. And that's what he's doing. But, you know, Trump doesn't have any subtlety. Yeah. He doesn't start out by saying, let me first off tell you the genocide that. That President Xi is presiding over is despicable and disgusting. But for you to underestimate his intellect right. and ability to plot and plan uh, would be a big mistake. That's the way normal people say it. But instead, Trump says, yeah, like that North Korean leader, love Vladimir Putin. And he's a you know, smart guy. President Xi is a smart, strong guy. He doesn't have the other part where... You know, uh, so Kim therefore, Jong, don't uh, underestimate them because they're crazy geniuses. That, that's the way you yeah. say it, like the way like you Dr. would say. Like Dr. Evil, it. yeah. Yeah. Brian, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the uh, Talkers Convention and the panel you're on. I think I'm on the panel right right after you, but it's always a good conversation listening to you talk with Harry Hurley and uh, John Caracciola. What uh, what can people look forward to this morning on television and uh, and later this morning on radio? What do you got going on? Uh, we got a lot. Uh, I mean, first off, I'm going to be unloading uh, the Washington Post and New York Times has more than uh, our, our FBI and cyber team in finding out who this big hacker mm. is. Uh, the president's disastrous trip over with Hunter Biden in Ireland, where he decides to tell a bunch of kids about Jesse Helms when they ask him about what the key to success is. Unbelievable. <laughs> Didn't even know what state Jesse Helms was from. Why you bring up Jesse Helms to Irish children? That's going to be an interesting... Uh, <laughs> to any children. Uh, of, uh, yeah, to any children. Uh, going to talk about the ongoing... Uh, going to talk about the ongoing investigation uh, with the president. And also, uh, on a side note, Elon Musk took apart this BBC reporter. Also opened up about how painful this transition has been with Twitter. Um, uh, amongst our guests on radio, uh, Ben Dominich, Dave Rubin. Uh, John Levine, he's following the Hunter Biden story, which is now expanding big time. 80 visits for Hunter Biden's business associates when Joe Biden was vice president. And John Levine also uh, is able to find out, too, uh, about this one Mike McCormick, who is a stenographer uh, with Joe Biden when he went over to Ukraine. 
and watched, uh, watch what he did and sell American interests for his own personal profit. That's a Obama-hired stenographer who's trying to tell the FBI his story, and the FBI mm-hmm. doesn't want to hear it. So well, those are just some of the things we'll talk about. All right. About. Uh, busy day for you, Brian. They're all busy, it seems. All right, Brian, thanks as always. I look forward to seeing you, um, you know, hopefully before June 2nd. But thanks again. All right. Go get him. Thank you. Uh, Brian Bye, Kilmeade. Brian. Uh, see him on Fox and Friends. And then listen to him on his nationally syndicated radio program a little bit later this afternoon. And then obviously he's on Fox News Channel this afternoon with One Nation. I'm actually going to be on Fox and Friends this morning. Are you? At 740. Oh, yeah. that, see, no wonder you're, you're yeah, dressed so nicely. Yeah. What are you talking about? Uh, we're talking about the Tim Scott stuff and something else that I can't remember. But I All will, right. But I'll I will, uh, brush I will, up. I will stay awake yeah. to make sure <laughs> that I listen. <laughs> Believe me. No, I feel like I owe it to you. I feel like we're, we're a team. All right. Um, see, Laura. Our current on Fox and Friends this morning as well. It's quite an action-packed show. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame. Give you an opportunity to comment whatever you like for 15 seconds. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Frank Morano here with Laura Curran. And, and Laura Curran was amazed that anybody would uh, stay on hold 200 minutes or more oh, to chat with me. Uh, but uh, evidently, Robert in Suffolk has finally thrown Robert, in the we towel. we were going to take your call. We were. We you, were for real, right? For, I mean, yeah, was we, not I said, this is the most patient man. we got to talk yeah, to him. Exactly. But Aww. apparently, even his patience has <laughs> he a... He had to go to bed. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, all right. We're going to give you 15 seconds of fame to say whatever you like as part of, 50, um, if, you know, 15 seconds of fame. How have you found being here this hour, Laura? Super fun. And I'm so grateful that you said that I could do it. I kind of <laughs> invited myself. Well, wonderful. So thank we'll, you we'll for do saying it again, yes. Huh? Yeah, definitely. Great. All right. Time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Eve Bryant. Yeah, you can say anything you want on this segment. Frank, uh, it seems like there's a problem in New Jersey with a police scandal now brewing. Did you ever ask Eric Adams if he ever researched the police sexes? Sex- Roy. <laughs> Good morning, listeners. Do not listen to Curtis for how he keeps talking about Frank Morano. It's called <laughs> bullying. Get rid of him. <laughs> Raja. Caramba. <laughs> Curtis, your list of warmongers is multiplying like the populations of Indochina. Gungo Chang, Mustache Bolton, Bunker Levitt, even the Polish host. Mike. Morning, Frank. Uh, going forward, I would like to be identified as Original Mike or the caller previous, previously known as Mike or oh, Silly Jerry, depending on my moods. <laughs> Frankie. Shout out to Fred from Yonkers. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? Learn that poem. Learn the poem. Fred, learn the poem. And finally, Stan. Good morning, Frank. I'm Laura. In 2021, you did the interview with John R. Gambling. John Gambling had it right. With Trump, right message, wrong messenger. 
very much on target. We need somebody else with the same message. By the way, how's John Gambling doing these days? Thank you, Stan. Uh, we haven't talked in uh, maybe a couple of months, but I will I will give him a call. Uh, Laura, thank you. Thank you, Frank. All right, have fun on Fox and Friends. I'll be back tomorrow, God willing. Uh, Frank Morano, good day.